Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caught, where we talk about all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King and a lot of other stuff in the pre-show tonight. <laughs> We're like an hour into this conversation, so I'm wondering how the vibe is going to be. You should have recorded it, man. We, I uh, know. We could have sold went... some of those ideas as gold. Well, no, here's the thing is we've come up, well, you've come up with a book idea. We don't want to put that on the internet. <laughs> so we'll steal it. Someone just anyway, write for me. Come on, right? I mean, I, I will write it with you. I feel like it's such a cool idea, but whatever. Anyways, I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my content and co-author, apparently, DJ. How's it going? I just finished cleaning out some pipes, and it's really stinky, and I don't like being an adult anymore, so let's retire. <laughs> I am very on board with this. I also, whatever plan means I'll never have to clean a stinky pipe. Like, oh. count me in. Is that socialism? Is that capitalism? I don't know. Whatever don't it is. Is it communism? <laughs> I'm <up>. in! <laughs> yeah. Stinky pipes. I was telling you, I would have definitely thrown up. Oh, yeah. Uh, for th- those of you guys listening now, um, I-, I clogged up the pipe that goes to my sink and to my ooh, dishwasher. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And, like, whatever has been growing in there had a very pungent smell as I had to uh. it out. And it splashed everywhere and got on my clothes. It was and on not your fun. Face. Yeah, I hope I hope this isn't like uh, 28 days later where I got a drop in my eye and like next thing you know. I know. Ugh. Why does it always hit you in the face though? It's I, I whenever you're dealing with something gross, like it's the law like, of attraction, it always has to hit you in the face. Yep. Or you like you rub your eye and like it just goes across and you're like, oh no. no. <laughs> Anyway, Hopefully this are... will distract you. <laughs> now that we've grossed everybody out who's listening, um <laughs> Yeah. So they understand. what's the story, Rachel? Where are we at today? All right. Well, here's the plan for this episode. We are gonna kick the show off with our in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass, part three, come reap, chapter four, Ronan Cuthbert, sections thirteen through nineteen. And then we'll close out the show with our thoughts on the episode from or our thoughts on episode five of the stand, even though it's technically over for everyone else we're just a little bit behind and some fun listener feedback from our facebook group but before we get into all that dj can you please remind our listeners of what our spoiler policy is like a pipe that leaves a black gooey mess in front of you we will draw a line on the cement (laughs) letting you know where the spoilers start and the end of the session begins so that way you don't walk in anything gross and get your shoes or face all smelly with spoilers <laughs> oh dj you are like a master at these you just weave a magic spell every time i never know what it's gonna be but i always anticipate it. I, I wish i could tell you i know what it's gonna be too <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shit. All right. Well, where did we leave off with these people? Uh, So we left Jonas in the bar uh, getting a dire warning about uh, who he's going to run into. Um, We left Roland and Keith Burt in their uh, fight. And Keith Burt has run off to find Shimi, who has informed him of some new information, man. Yeah. Um, I feel like for a moment, I just imagined uh, uh, Keith Burt is like... um, Big Lebowski. (laughs) Some new information has come to light. Oh my god, I love that movie so much. (laughs) And and so, uh, so those are left as sort of cliffhangers. And so we follow up and jump in with Jonas, who is riding his horse. um, What is the horse's name? 
Ooh, I was it. Is it like come hither or? Um, I didn't or... catch that. Damn it! I missed that. Oh, it's such a weird name that you're like. Let me see. Let me pull up the book. But because you know, I'm going to be talking about a horse name, and it's but it's not this one. That's so weird. <laughs> How did I? Is it? I mean, I know he says like reconocimiento or something, but I didn't know. You think that's the name of the horse? Well, the first thing is, is like, uh, it's Jonas riding on this horse and like they okay. name the horse. Okay. I'm going, I'm, I got the book open. So let's see here. Section like I haven't even got or... it in anywhere and I'm like already calling you out on horse name. I know. Right. Busted. This is the kind of shit that I'm usually on though. I know. I was right. actually looking for the name in the show notes. The... All right. 20 minutes later, Eldred Jonas was riding under the cun piece into the, the courtyard of seafront uneasy because he had been expect he had expected latigo i come in peace that's the name of the horse right no he's riding beneath a sign that says come in peace oh no damn it did i just <laughs> send you a, a... are you trolling me no no this... <laughs> i think i just sent you down a search that does that my brain connected and i thought the horse's name was i come in peace that's a great like racehorse name. Yeah, I know, and and then like um, it kind of got me thinking about Dolph Lundgren in that like one drug movie. Oh my god, where he's like a killer alien, right? Yep, and he's like, yes! uh, I come in peace, and then he like gives him heroin. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's just a sign. Oh he's, damn, it. he rides okay. underneath it. Unless he's riding on the other side of a horse, but now I'm picturing him hanging underneath the horse, like <laughs> creeping in like Metal Gear or something. <laughs> so uh, Jonas rolls into town on this horse that apparently um, I thought was named I Come in Peace, but it's not because uh, I'm uh, poor, poor at <laughs> naming and reading. Uh, uh, so he rolls in, um, he kind of pops in and, and realizes that like, Things are a little weird. He uh, runs into oh, shoot. What's her name? Olive Thorin. Yeah. So he, he runs into Olive, and uh, Olive's like sitting there, and she's like, "Oh, hey, how's it going?" And he's like, "I'm not here to see you." <laughs> I'm like, Poor "I'm here." To... Olive, dude, like she gets the shaft from everybody. <laughs> I know, right? <sighs> and like she's like heart. a little disheartened, and he's like, "I'm here to see you know basically the man in black." And and, like, while he's, like, wandering up to this room where the man in black is at, like, we find out, I didn't know that I, maybe I knew this and I just wasn't paying attention, but I didn't realize that um, Jonas was gay and that, like, they basically point this out several times here. Like, mm, it's it's not the girls that get him excited. It's the, um, it's the power that straightens his. I think what they're trying to say is not necessarily that he's gay, but just that what turns him on is power. Because we know that he was having sex with Coral Thorin. Because one of the things I was kind of asking you is, so we know that the Coral Thorin Rhymer thing is happening, and in the, we I can from her perspective I can understand what she's getting out of it. Right, she's getting access to power. And someone who is even higher up there than her own brother. But what is he getting from her was my question. How does Coral fit into that dynamic? What power is she providing? And it makes me wonder if we don't, we're going to learn more about Coral. Maybe we don't totally understand who she is. Okay, so like she's higher up the food chain or something? I don't know. I just feel like there must be something advantageous to that relationship if he's not banging her because he thinks she's hot, but because he's turned on by power. Hmm. So, yeah. sorry. No, 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 that's fine. Like, I was completely confused by this. 
And I mm-hmm. went back and like, I'm like, are they saying he's gay? Because like, that's sort no. of what it felt like a little bit. And then I'm like, but wait a minute. Wasn't he just, like talking about young girls and like sleeping, just finished sleeping with somebody? Like, but is he just doing that to like put up the facade as a. No. I just feel like, I don't know. I did not. That's not my interpretation, but maybe I'm missing some stuff that you saw. My interpretation is just that he is about power. Hmm. and that it's like his sexual orientation is power so i I guess like maybe um from hanging out for years with more flamboyant folks um when he started talking about the purple curtains and like some Mm -hmm. of the setting dress around the table and so on Mm -hmm. i just assumed that was him like well purple i really like good decorations and like i'm very classy and know my way around a dinner table and well the purple thing is that purple has historically been the color of royalty so like the only person that can wear purple is the king oh i thought red was the color that was like sought after for many years i mean that may be as well but i i think that classically purple is the color of royalty and that is yeah hold on purple i thought purple or i thought blue and and red were like the the rich people colors because like yeah but purple is a mix of blue and red oh yeah okay yeah so the color purple ties to kings and queens that date back to the ancient world where it was prized for its bold hues and often reserved for the upper crust the persian king cyrus adopted a purple tunic as his royal uniform and some roman emperors forbid their citizens from wearing purple clothing under penalty of death so, okay well then there you go there you go <laughs> so yeah it's wealth and power is represented and royalty is represented by purple. okay uh so my bad i just thought he had really good taste <laughs> <laughs> i uh, mean it is velvet so he says not no like burlap purple burlap he's okay. very fancy with his velvet okay okay so so basically he rolls up and like he gets into this room he sees that like there's a set dress for um for dinner and the food's already cold and like the room feels empty but he feels uncomfortable in it and he's like looking around and he looks in the mirror and like boom the man in black is there with like sharp teeth right and then like he looks again and suddenly the teeth are normal and then you know he's he's kind of like off put he realizes right away like this doesn't feel good at all this guy's no this guy's weird and so he goes through the normal set of asking him to see like his sigil um and uh and for some reason when i listened to the audiobook they said sigil yeah i think instead of sigil yeah it's is that a is there a reason for that do you know or i think it's meant to be a sigil but this is just sort of some mid-world diet like dialect kind of thing okay Mm -hmm. because i mean it, it what he describes is a sigil yeah uh so the sigil we'll say um it's just like I in the middle of a, a like a metal medallion and and he looks at it and he's like almost afraid to touch it because he he's so creeped out by this guy that he feels like if he touches it, the, the sigil will like come alive and the eye will look straight at him. Mm-hmm. And, and so he avoids touching it. And th- this whole interaction with the man in black is is creeping him out immensely. And he's like, what what should I call you? And and the the entire time the man, man in black is like tittering and like laughing Ugh. and like it's described almost as the sound you would hear coming from an essay in asylum 
And and so like he's like, well, what should I call you? And he's like, well, call me Walter. And like it's very interesting to watch the stand this week and also read the chapter this week because they are very different interpretations of this. Yeah, I know, right? I'll just say that. (laughs) Yeah. This guy is like a a dead madman almost. Yeah, yeah. And so like completely disturbed. Um, wants to know where the other guy's at and like apparently sent him off to go help um, help with her, uh, basically I think she has to like read something for her her catechisms her catechisms yeah mm-hmm. so um, the other guy's off doing that and and basically the man in black's like I'm gonna put my arm around you and you could tell me about all the things that have been happening since these three boys showed up and like Jonas is immediately like no, don't touch me right <sighs> right I don't feel good about this. And, and like the man in black's like, sit down. It's time to plather. And like, you, you just feel like Jonas isn't a character you want to feel bad for. No, but in this moment, you're just like, Ooh, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. And I I think also kind of tells you that the man in black is very good about making people feel very strongly. However, he wants them to feel, because if you think about when he was around the TikTok man in the last book, like it was a very soothing presence and he went into this state of adoration and worship. Whereas now with Jonas, when he, I think he's trying to intimidate him a little bit, he can't even bear his touch and he doesn't want to really look at him because he he's showing, we see what DePape means by he has other faces. Um, in this case, uh, Jonas sees um, Court's father. So I, uh, I last time I was wondering if the rules were is, is it somebody does he show you people that you've killed or something like that because of the the man that old man that um the pape had shot but it seems like it's just whoever would be disturbing for you to see yeah because he didn't end up killing uh, Court's father Mm-mm. he was cast out by him so exactly yeah makes mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and so like basically like super creeped out things are weird um jonas is trapped in this situation with this guy and like he even refers to him as possibly you know the the wizard yeah yeah the 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 farson or Latigo's sorcerer or farson sorcerer yeah like yep. yeah exactly mm-hmm. and so you start to um almost like understand the man in black's power dynamic like he's playing bit. it as though he's the, the second tier yeah but he's the first tier yeah, I mean, I think you would be. I we haven't met Farson. I don't know if we meet Farson or what the deal is, but I can't imagine you can pull off a changing face like. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, yeah. dipping in and out of existence with pointy teeth. Mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting that he, at this point he's already going by Walter Odem, which is the name he gives in the Gunslinger. But we know that up until this point he's been Martin, so I'm unclear if he's like somehow going back and forth playing both of these characters at the same time or if he has transitioned away from being martin is now walter odam i don't know um that's a good question actually yeah someone, someone out there answer that for us <laughs> right right i like i need a, i need a randall flag timeline real real bad that's what i that's what i want for universe give me a randall flag time 
because I want to know, like, I was like, is there multiple versions of him, like, by some way of the multiverse? Are they both existing at the same time? Is that why he can be so many different characters? Is he someone who, like, is able to, like, duplicate himself in some way? I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I find him to be a very fascinating and mysterious Does he have a character. Twitter running around? Like, I doing... mean, is he just, is Randall Flagg actually just an arm- army of his own twinners? <laughs> I don't know. It's it, but it. I mean, this timeline is very confusing to me. The other thing I I enjoyed was that we know he's Walter O'Dim, and he's introduced in this book while he is actually gone dim. Mm-hmm. Um, and two of our villains in this same chapter meet characters that we've been following through this book while having gone dim. Oh. You know what I mean? Because later, and that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but Rhea also goes dim. So I'm not really sure if that's just a coincidence or if there's a larger idea here. I couldn't quite put it together, but maybe it'll come clear as we move forward. I don't know. <laughs> well, I like Scientology. We'll go clear at some point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> the other so, thing is, oh, sorry. The other oh, no, thing, the, go ahead. You, you, please. No, I was just going to say, that's a really weird reference and I'm sorry I did it. <laughs> like we said at the top of the show we've already like an, or an hour into this and we've lost our minds at this point. <laughs> all right the other thing we get in this section is that we get a truer picture of the power dynamic uh rhymer has kind of been the top dog up until this point right kind of you feel like he's maybe the puppet master he's we found out he's the one that hired the big coffin hunter so he's like the big deal around here but along comes the man in black and rhymer has been totally pushed to the side you know, yep. he sent him to go deal with Susan to get him out of the way so that he could compartmentalize information in a way that basically pushes him out of the loop, which, you know. Well, which means the man in black knows who's actually playing the castle's game against these kids. Yeah. And he obviously is the person in charge here, like that he doesn't eat. And to me, what I think is hopefully going to be very satisfying is that Reimer is essentially this traitor to the affiliation. He is in, in league with the, with Farson, who's presumably a bad dude. If he's hooked up with the man in black, he's in league with the big coffin hunters who we know are just like kind of scummy, but here he, and he, and he thinks he's like running the game. Like he thinks he's the person playing castles, but like already we're seeing um, that he's very close to being hoisted on his own petard which I I think will be very satisfying if that comes to pass. (laughs) Uh, And then I have one more question before I move on. I'm so sorry. So Walter is so weird. I mean, I love him. I find him to be a deeply compelling character, obviously, but he talks about like Frank Sinatra and he's talking in the same way Blaine sort of was, where he's talking in terms of multiverse, but I feel like he's a very intentional character do you have any idea why he might have been saying these things to Jonas, knowing that Jonas would have no idea what he's talking well, about? I, I actually wanted to ask you about that because okay, um, cool. uh, he, he he mentions um, shoot, uh, R- Ringo. No, Frank Anger? Sinatra. Frank, but he rin- and, oh, and Derbingle. Derbingle, yeah. So um, Frank Sinatra and Derbingle. Is there any significance to Derbingle at all? Because like. I've never heard that name. I don't know who that I is. I don't think so. I believe my guess is Derbingle is um like famous in Midworld. Oh, wait and... a minute. I guess Derbingle is maybe is a where... nickname for Bing Crosby. Is it? Nicknamed Derbingle was common among Crosby's German listeners and be- and came to be used by his English speaking fans. Oh, okay. So like Ben Crosby 
or um, Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Obviously, which one's a better crooner? Yes. So he doesn't, Jonas doesn't know what a crooner is. He certainly does not know who Frank Sinatra or Derbingle is. I mean, I didn't even know who Derbingle was till just now. So I, I, why, why would he ask him these questions? Is he just trying to look crazy and put Jonas off his, like on his back foot? Or do you think there's like, is there some sort of, so what is he doing? I thought of it more as, so, okay, if you back up for a little bit um, with the Blaine situation, so when he rescues the TikTok man and they, like, depart, mm-hmm. how do they depart if the train's the only way out, right? So right. if Walter can not only, or the man in black can not only, like, go and, like, ride along with someone else but can cut back and forth between universes, mm-hmm. like, this is basically just him showing his cards and the to the reader and not to gotcha. the locals that's that, like, interesting he just jumps back and forth between mm-hmm. one world and the other world mm-hmm. and that so would also explain talking like, to us he's not yes, yeah okay exactly. got it got it so it felt like to me that like that that was a throwaway line for the character's interaction because it's not like he needs to say more weird stuff to freak freak out jonas jonas right. is already like up nerved but for us as the independent observers like yeah that's throwing us a bone saying like this guy knows about the other worlds gotcha and like maybe he even goes there and like that callback also fits into the the theory and the thoughts of like like they were uh mystery men not mystery men um almost shaman that like walked between worlds Mm, yes 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 the manny Yep, exactly. Yes. Oh, so no, a- wait a minute. We know that Jonas ha- knows the Manny because one of the first things we learned about him when is the it- tape is... Yes, 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 yes. yes. This yes. is an interesting link. So maybe, even though Jonas doesn't know the answer, maybe he's trying to find out, gauge out exactly what Jonas knows. Well, okay, so if you take that notch, maybe the man in black is a very experienced comparatively world walker mm-hmm. and Jonas is like a novice. Yes. And so then that works in both ways. It informs the, the reader that the man in black travels between worlds, but then it also is a litmus test against how much. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think we mm. cracked it. That's what's yeah, happening I think, here. I think between the two of us, like we, we managed <laughs> to like come up with a, work. <laughs> a, a somewhat coherent theory. So I, I, felt, I like the sound of that. Yeah. It just felt so intentional to me. I, I, it was standing out like a sore thumb and I couldn't quite put it together, but you're totally, yes. I think to our, our, through our powers combined, we have cracked the code. But that would also explain <laughs> too, um, since the man in black, like, basically pick jonas as the person right that he wants to kind of palaver with and, yeah. and deal with and not just uh, shuffle to the side the man in black sees a basic kindred spirit in this man who is like mm-hmm. playing castles and has walked worlds and so on yeah it'll be interesting to see jonas again after this conversation because we don't see what they say to each other but if you think about the last time that walter odim palavered with someone yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens so we move on we cut scenes from there to um keith burt who is returning from his ride and we got elaine and and roland basically playing cards Mm -hmm. um keith burt kind of has this like 
I almost imagined um, the Joker from The Watchmen. Yep, yep. Yep, like, this, like, crazed, like, I'm the only one who gets the joke. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. Rolls in, and, like, Roland and Keith and Elaine both recognized it, like, Keith Burt's a little bit off. Uh-huh. And, and uh, Roland, like, is, like, I, you know, internally is, like, I, I hope that that ride would have, like, uh, dimmed down his turmoil, but it hasn't. Like, if only he can wait a little bit longer, um, then this will all be over. And Roland stops for a second and is like, why haven't I told him? Right. Right. And it's like, you, you start to see a, a small crack in Roland's facade here. Yes. yes and, like, yes. Elaine's like, don't, don't go out there. And Keith Burt's like, uh, come on out. I need to show you something. And Elaine's like, don't go out there. And Roland basically is like, well, I'm going to be murdered by somebody. Yeah. <laughs> at, at least it's by a friend, you know? Right. Right. Which is like a su- super strange statement. And then Roland like is even, he's like, well, at least we don't have guns, you know? Right. Right. I mean, yeah, because it's, I think it's quite clear that the breaking point that Cuthbert was left the place at like he was like just on the verge of snapping whatever has happened in the meantime he has not cooled off he has snapped he has snapped. Yeah, he, he's, he's gone a little mad with this and and the, this is fun as it reveals um some stuff about keith Bert that we we kind of didn't get a picture of before and mm-hmm. we'll get into it when we get further along but like basically keith Bert like walks him out and is like hey hey why don't, wait wait before we move on, can we talk really quickly about this section? Because I, I have a lot of thoughts about this first section and a lot of thoughts about what happens next. Oh, yeah. And I could totally summarize this into like two seconds. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Let me go, really go, go. quickly. Let's step back to because this is actually two different. Se- I mean, they're back to back, but it's two different sections. So, OK. So first of all, I just want to say I am so relieved to finally, finally get what I've been asking for, which is to get into Roland's head. He has been such a black box for so long. It's been infuriating. And what's fascinating is all these questions that I was like screaming into the universe last time, we finally get some clarification around it. I mean, not all the answers that I want, but some, and it's such a relief. Um, These two sections are incredibly satisfying. They were like, I was on the edge of my seat through all of this. But yeah, so for one thing, we find out that like this calm exterior, it, underneath it, he is no longer calm. He is, you know, even though he still appears outwardly to be so, he's in a great deal of turmoil because he's having to question himself for the first time since probably, I don't know, the whorehouse with his dad. Like there's been absolutely no real self-reflection happening. And so here he is kind of... Cuthbert and Elaine have put up a mirror to him in a way that he's having trouble resisting. And what this turmoil breaks down to is a crack in this, like where he is desperately trying to still rationalize the decisions he's been making up until this point, but having trouble doing so. So I pulled this quote. It's a little bit long, but I think it's like kind of the crux of what's happening here. Uh, Elaine told him what Cuthbert had said. And while the two, while the two of them had been standing in the yard, they were terrible things to hear from a friend, even if they came at a, a second hand. Yet what haunted him more was that Bert had just said what Bert had said just before leaving. You've called your carelessness love and made virtue of irresponsibility. Was there even a chance that this was there even a chance that he had done such a thing? Over and over he had told himself no, that the course he had ordered to them them to follow was as was hard but sensible, 
the only course that made sense. Cuthbert's shouting was just so much angry wind brought on by nerves, and his fury at having their private place defiled so outrageously. Still, tell him that he's right for the wrong reason, and that that makes him all the way wrong. That couldn't be. Could it? So, like, this is this was finally the thing he needed to hear to kind of break through that like he's not just he's not wrong but because he's making decisions from the wrong perspective it makes him wrong and that is like kind of what gets underneath his armor in a way and i think he would not have been able to ever hear those things from elaine and as or sorry from cuthbert but as much as it hurt to hear it from elaine hearing it he needed to hear it from him because for like because Elaine has not been coming so aggressively towards him, he was able to kind of he he was able to get behind those defenses. So that was fascinating because, like I said, I haven't had any idea what's happening in Roland's head, and it's been incredibly incredibly frustrating. Well, and you get this moment too, where like Roland's like, "Am I love drunk?" Yes, and, and like, the answer is duh. Yeah. <laughs> And, yes. and so like that moment there is was what did it for me it's like oh roland finally realizing like why did i not include these people like yeah i've been like operating in a fog like these are my partners am i living a double life is like one is a lover and the other is like a a friend of these folks like what am right. i doing right i mean that was the thing i was screaming about last time like why aren't you including them just tell them what's going on why not tell them and we find out the reason is there is no reason like i wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt but the truth is he just was compartmentalizing because he out of just arrogance and uh so that was irritating but also like good to at least have an answer about uh just a couple of little detail or one little detail i wanted to point out was that the game that they're playing is called either Casa Fuerte or Hot Patch. And this trans the Spanish translation for Casa Fuerte is strong house. And I was like, oof, that's an on-the-nose sort of metaphor right there. Like essentially, they're either going to unify at this point, come together and be a strong house united, or they're gonna end up in a hot patch. Oh, <laughs> that is interesting. I didn't <laughs> pick that up. So yeah. Well, I saw the Casa Fuerte and I was like, Fuerte. is that luck and and i like so i googled it it's not it's strong um and i was just like oh oh stephen king <laughs> my spanish is real bad so get you some duolingo you'll be fine i mean i took four years of spanish but uh then i didn't use it for uh 20 years so mm. there's the problem yo so tambien <laughs> uh, no habla espanol and puedo ir al baño are the only things i remember <laughs> Oh, and, bathroom door and, and chica bonita oh pretty girl i know that yep, one yep. that one uh gets you gets you some smiles every once in a while oh, okay okay uh, okay so moving on um basically yes, let's go uh, to the, the most delicious sucker punch in yeah. literary history yeah Thank so keithbert's like hey roland i need to show you something and like he's still got this mad look and like roland basically senses the craziness elaine's like no don't 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 do it <laughs> <laughs> I know, and, and like Roland's like, well, you know, if I'm gonna be murdered day, at least my friend, okay. And so he rolls out there, and like Heathbert points at a spot on the ground, and it's like, see that right there? And Roland looks close, looks closer, <laughs> looks closer. He's like, I don't know if I see anything. And like, wham, slamo, just hits him as hard as he can. Uh, Roland is described as like not being unconscious, but his arms and legs had stopped working. 
Have you ever had your bell rung like that, where you're just like, nothing is functioning? Oh yeah, I've been uh, I've been concussed a few times in my Oof. life. Uh, yeah, Doc Martens back in the '90s would do that to your head. Oh, TJ! Oh my God! <laughs> so you get it. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I've been completely dazed by a hit to the head that was so hard that I chipped a tooth. Oof, oof, oof. Teeth stuff. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. Like that that makes it feel like the skin on my back is too small for my body. <laughs> like just like ah Your head like wobbles and then it almost feels like it swells for a second. Uh-huh. And your vision does this thing where it's just kinda like have you ever gotten off the couch too fast? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so your eyes do that where like they don't track right and like they yeah. get kind of like blotchy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I've and had you, my, I've like fallen off of something and like hit my chin and had my bell rung, but, but no, no. I mean, not, but not from a Doc Martin. <laughs> oh, a Doc Martin. <laughs> Just once, my own lack of coordination. <laughs> I was thrown out of a car at like thirty miles an hour once. Ooh, and like you hit the ground. So you think that this is a bad aside, but I'm throwing it in here. You think you can run fast? You and can't so run you no get, 30 miles per hour. When you get thrown out of a car, your instinct is to lean as far forward as possible and run. Ooh, that's but a good But what way ends to up happening plans. is you just like go bloop, backwards because oh. your momentum is the exact same momentum as the car. So there's no way you could keep the speed. So you think you would face plant, but instead you like, compl- as soon as your foot touches the ground, you just flip completely over and slam to the ground as hard as you can. DJ, I just want to like coat you in nerf. <laughs> you just need a nerf suit so this description of, of roland like losing his his yeah. arm and and leg control is like completely apt for this kind of like crazy hit yeah and like roland is stunned and dazed and and keith bird is like there you know and like elaine's like no you've lost your mind man don't do it what are you doing and like this is like the ultimate disrespect is is sneaking up on someone and punching them. And man, Ro- if anybody deserved a smack in the chops, I swear to God, it was Roland. Yeah, and like Roland, like he, we get a little more internal with this. Like Roland is battling between like outright rage uh-huh. and trying to also like think about the quartet and stopping. Keith Burton and Elaine yeah. from, from like fighting. And that so battle within himself at, is fascinating. At the moment where he's like been beaten down, he is both battling with rage, but also battling with like, well, I don't want my friends to get in a fight and make this even worse. Right. And, and Keith Burton like basically is like, you did this. This is your fault. And and Roland's like, you know what? He like battles with his inner demons. He calms down and he's like, if I were to get you back for everything that you've done over the years, you'd be a broken man. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to get you back for this one and we'll call it even. <laughs> yeah, Roland is hot. And he you're is, like, well, actually, he's cold, but yes. But he's like, that That shows like sort of that he's like tamped down his inner anger to the point where like he's trying to work on logic as opposed to on like complete madness or rage uh-huh, uh-huh which which is interesting because then keeper takes this opportunity to be like here's a note yeah. <laughs> take a look at it and like as soon as roland reads this it's almost like a second punch to the head yeah 
Yeah, I think this definitely rocked him more than any any punch that he could deliver. Although I I I'm team Cuthbert in that he like needed that. In order for them to get to the place where they end up at the end of this section, like I don't think just throwing the note at him would have been enough. I think he needed to punch him in the face. Well, it's like it almost felt like uh, one of those famous movie scenes where like two people beat each other up until like one can barely move to make someone take a pill or something like that. Or like put on the glasses and they live. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. They live. That's perfect. That is a great example. Like he just beats that guy up left and right until he finally puts the glasses on. He's like, fuck, now I see it. I love that scene so much. It's so stupid. I love it. But I mean, like that's the sort of thing that men trap themselves into is like Mm -hmm. this sort of like masculinity problem where it's me against you and like I will not even attempt to try and take a look at it. I'm so glad you brought up masculinity because continue, but we're going to circle back to that in the section because I have some thoughts. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's definitely some like man stuff here. A beautiful Um, man stuff. But go ahead. Yes, yes. So when he throws the note down, like Roland sees it, it like I said, it's basically a, a punch back in the head again because Roland realizes now mm-hmm. what would drive Keithbert to this sort of anger. And his reaction is like, what would have happened to Susan if this note had been delivered? And like Keithbert's like, what about us? You know, and also been, we would die. <laughs> we would be hanging from the gallows, most likely, if this were discovered. <laughs> and, but at least you like see this action. And, and Roland, like, they're about to help him up, and he falls back down, and he actually, like, sort of grovels a little bit. And mm-hmm. Keithbert's like, that's not what I wanted. I, I don't want to see my leader groveling. I just wanted to bring him to his senses to realize right, that, like, right. this is a problem, and you need to look at it from another perspective. And, and so what ends up happening is, like, Keithbert is sort of embarrassed that Roland would throw himself at at his feet and apologize in this manner. Mm-hmm. And Keithbert like makes a gesture that kind of like again the toxic masculinity thing is like no it's okay Roland you know and like Roland like immediately with this like no um you know this almost for perfect forgiveness that Keithbert gives him mm-hmm. <laughs> it almost like enrages him. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. like you can't forgive me because I can't forgive myself. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. and so it's this like weird moment, and that's why I brought up the toxic masculinity is because like yeah, a lot of men, and I'm not necessarily in that category, but like yeah, they, I would not say that you exhibit toxic masculinity. They can't, which is why I love you. <laughs> they, they they can't um can't cope with being wrong and then if they are wrong the anger at themselves is so strong that it enrages them when someone else is like no man you missed this one thing and like it's okay it because the breaking of that like i do things right structure is hit them so much in the core Mm -hmm. that they don't have room for uh you know understanding or forgiveness at that time and like, then they immediately want to turn that inward hate on something else, yeah. And an apology mm-hmm. uh, or a, like acceptance or um, a forgiving nature easily becomes a return target. As like, I can't, I can't take this on myself, and so I'm gonna yeah. be also angry at you. <laughs> angry is a lot easier to live with than shame, and I exactly. think that. 
Cuthbert gave him this kernel of shame that he's struggling to live with. Yeah, and Roland like already um sort of had this like bashful not bashful pride, but like quiet pride of being like the first to this and the first to mm-hmm. that and like an uh, excellent gunslinger and you know uh, basically the alpha male of this group. Yes. And then Roland sees Cuthbert is like second tier. Mm-hmm. And so in this moment, it's it's like Superman is is being helped up by Batman. Yeah. And but like I... Superman's like, you, you ain't got no powers. Get out of here. <laughs> right? Or I, I mean, mean maybe that's like the a poor analogy, but like No, no, no. I know what you mean. I think this is a this this section might be after the the gunfight scene in the the Traveler's End, my favorite chapter in the book so far. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty dark. I mean, I just think it's so I think it's kind of it is dark, but it's also kind of beautiful and emotionally complex and honest. And like I'm glad that you brought up toxic masculinity so I didn't have to be the first one to say it because I think <laughs> it's a really nuanced perspective on it. Like I don't think it's all one thing. Like I think it's much more emotionally honest than that. That like there is this part of Roland that the thing he holds on to is this anger because there is at its core is this shame um, that doesn't allow him to totally process that emotion. But at the same time, both of these men tell each other that they love them. Both of these men cry. And like, that's something that like, if you're not familiar with the concept of toxic masculinity, it does. It's just that not allowing you're socialized in a way that doesn't allow you to process natural emotions in that way without feeling like it's a sign of weakness. And here, are the, I mean, granted, these are boys. Um, and so maybe that's why they're allowed to process some of these feelings and talk about the fact that they love each other. But I also think that, like you said, Roland is like this uber masculine, like stiff upper lip stoic kind of guy. We know that underneath that, like his relationship, particularly with Jake, kind of complicates that. But I love that we have this scene where Roland, this like super, super dude, is like kind of emotionally raw in a way that is, I think, honest, but also just like it it shows you the complexity of this character in a way that it really reinforces why this book is so essential. Like, I feel like the Roland that I, it is completely um, filling in a lot of blanks for me about who Roland is in present day. And this scene in particular, and like these bonds that he has these as a young man with these other men really is informing things for me. Well, and there's um, a moment too, where it's like almost the feet washing. Um, yeah, I mean, well, where, Roland like, is Roland... willing to humble himself, which is well, shocking. Not just the like apology with the groveling a little bit, but they help him up and Roland wanders over and like unloads Keithbert's horse. Mm-hmm. And Keithbert's like about to go over and help him and Elaine's like, No, let him let him do this, let him have right. this. Right. And that's where I kinda I may, maybe it's too biblical, but like throwing the feet washing thing is is like at I that, mean there's a sense of making amends, right? Like Yeah, but at mm-hmm. th- that moment, like so the other two realize that him dismounting and like taking care of Heathbert's horse is like a task that almost is 
menial beneath, yeah menial or beneath roland's yeah. normal stature right and so to do that is like an extra level of humbling yeah that would not be coming of a, a normal gunslinger and so keith Burke's effort to like jump in and like elaine stopping him is almost them like realizing that like roland needs to i don't know if demean himself but like he needs to humble himself i also think it was a matter of like he needs a moment Oh yeah, that too. That too. Mm-hmm. But it's it's such such a gravitas moment, and then of course, like toxic mas- masculinity rears its head again when like Roland rolls back in like r- regular faced and like, no, you're doing great with my cards. You keep playing with my cards. Yeah, no yeah. Problem. Everything's fine. I didn't just cry out in the yard. Nope, 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 nope. Yep. And, and I, I don't want to skip over this. Roland also has this like moment of internal dialogue where mm-hmm. he realizes that he has kept one group separate from the other mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. he he's even like kind of a back and forth with keith bird a little bit where it's like why did i do this because i thought my love could love life could be separate from my yep. regular life yep but the love doesn't lift him above the calling of ka and what he hadn't internalized is that it's not her and them, it's us. Right. Right. The other thing that's really important is that he explains, again, this gives us some insight into what has been going on with Roland, is that he had that sort of useful arrogance that he thought that their love was so powerful that fate, that Ka itself would bend to it. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, I totally understand those feelings. It's just essentially like love conquers all, right? That is what he is believing. But if you think about who Roland is today, and if this book is formative as to who he is today, um, if this doesn't go well, as we assume that's the case, since this is a Romeo and Juliet story and all the reasons that are not spoilers, (laughs) I'm trying to be like spoiler free, (laughs) but like, I think it's pretty clear this is not going to go well, right? Roland is a single dude, like, totally broken in real time. So, obviously, things did not go well here. No, no. She, uh, she just lived to be, like, a ripe old age of 90 and Roland never She ran off with Elaine. That's all. Yeah. Uh, no, but, uh, but I think that this tells us a lot about why he is the way he is in terms of Ka now. Where he never questions it. Like, you know, Eddie's like, Ka's Ka Ka, whatever. Whereas Roland is kind of a slave to Ka. Like, whatever Ka wills, whether it's, you know joining up pulling people from another universe in order to go get the the tower whether it's letting a child drop to its death in the case of jake 1.0 you know whatever ka deems he follows and i think that's a direct result of whatever happens here where he tried to fight ka or thought he was above ka yeah yeah Yeah. that's pretty fair telling uh so Roland also does this thing that like previously had been a little wishy-washy when they wanted to go to the sheriff's office or wherever Roland hadn't really taken the leader's role and like picked someone and said, let's go do it. Yeah. Right. So he, right. He rolls in and like, he's finally fallen back into what he should have been doing to begin with. And says like, all right, Bert, we, we got something to do. We got to go over to Rhea's hut in the morning and like Mm -hmm. have a discussion. And that, that moment and that statement weighs heavy because that's the thing that Roland was basically unwilling to do previously. 
right in these moments and now he's making the command decision and like saying what we're gonna do and then there's the question like do we mean to kill her right and that weighs heavy on him but you know roland's like no you know um not unless she makes us right and so that in itself is like a young roland thing whereas Mm -hmm. old roland would be like nah one strike and you're out young roland is still like don't want to kill someone unless we have to again this book is shaping who roland is today Mm -hmm. yep and like that decision right there underlines like jake dropped down the well right right you know what i mean like yeah he was he's so ruthless now but at this age with this amount of life experience he's he he's not the obvious thing they need to do is kill Rhea, and he's reticent to do so yeah like even if king didn't foreshadow the shit out of that we know (laughs) Rhea. we know that this would be a very bad idea to just kind of go and threaten her or to like give her the business like she is such a like a hate monster the only thing that they're going to do they're not going to intimidate her they're not going to do anything other than rile her up and like harden her resolve to like make them an enemy yeah yeah Uh, (gasps) so they get up in the morning this is probably the first time they've donned their guns in a while um and they roll out to uh to visit ria's hut um they quietly head up there and like are sort of stoic about it um they finally get there and if you want to stop me at any point, yeah. Rachel, to like me, dive in. Let like... me stop you before they actually get to Rhea's hut, because there's just a couple of things I want to point out. First of all, we've talked a lot about horses' names, and this is the first time that that uh, Roland's horse's name really struck me. His name is Rusher. We've known this. but a... Oh, yeah, but I thought that was a, a sex sex thing. Right, but I think what, and it may, be, and at, at, here's the thing is, I feel like we had to get to this point in order to properly interpret it. Um, but I do think that it could be column A and column B, you know what I mean? But I do think it's definitely a reference to the idea that like, you know, fools rush in, you know, when people are in (laughs) love, that that, that's the, you know, the Elvis song, right? Like exactly. And and here he is, he's the fool in love. I mean, cause this whole previous section, he's like, oh my God, I'm a fool. I've been a fool this whole time. And I was like, oh my God, Russia, fools rush in. Of course, that's the significance of that horse's name. And, so, and we were talking about crooners earlier, so maybe like... Exactly. See, it's all clues. It's all little clues and Stephen King. Well, Alice was famous for covering stuff, so did like Ben Crosby or um, the other guy that for some reason escaped me uh, saying fools rush in. Fools that would be like that would complete the circle that would complete the circle i did we didn't we kind of rushed past it uh oh my god rushed past it dude dj am i am i right it was sung by frank sinatra oh damn (laughs) nice so i was i was on the track that's great i love that yep yep you were correct the other thing is uh, a little tiny thing that was mentioned is uh in the previous section when we're talking about Roland not being willing to kill Rhea, he references the fact that he's about Jake's age. And like that's sort of juxtaposed by against current day Roland who would kill a child that age. 
<laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. It was it was sung by Frank Sinatra. So nice. So yeah, so that crooner yeah. thing does go full circle. That's it great. Sure do. <laughs> yeah, Elvis was famous for just covering a lot of songs. So like, I'm yeah. pretty sure that if if it's famous from Elvis, it wasn't written by him. Nope, nope. In 1940, it was sung by Frank Sinatra. That's great. Okay, so <laughs> okay, wait, well, a couple other quick things before we move on to going okay. to Bria's hut. First of all, this is the first time you mentioned it that they are carrying their guns finally, um, and I feel like obviously there's a lot of symbolism around the guns, but it also tells us that we have entered a new phase, a new level of escalation both in the plot in the book, but also in sort of their development as characters. I don't know that Roland pre-punch face punch was like worthy of carrying those guns. And now we're at this watershed moment where he's able to put them on. And there's, once you get the guns out, there's, there's no going back. And, and I feel like the fact that they have gone ahead and done that really does kind of tell you that the stakes have changed. You know, that the men's work, as Elaine would call it, has finally come to pass. They're going to be doing men's work now. And well, so they need men's works tool. There's a moment, though, too, where, like, Roland thinks about their his father and, mm-hmm. like, the, the rest of their fathers and realizes that their father would have made a different choice for Rhea and that, like, he will always regret that. Right. That's a very good point as well. Yeah, because Stephen DeShane would have, I think, seen through Rhea and recognized that, like, this hateful little toad, like, she's not just a troublemaker. There's she's a she's a problem. She's she's, yeah, she's evil incarnate. Everybody, I mean, it's hard to fall in love with Rhea. No, no, no. <laughs> you can't no, even no, pay no. Shimi uh, uh, some some pence to to go. <laughs> He'd rather his dick fall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the other thing is that just I wanted to point out really quickly is how different the dynamic is between Roland and Cuthbert than it has been for a very long time. Well, it's changed from like um, adversarial to teamwork now. Yes, I mean to the point where not only is he. Has he forgiven Roland? He's willing to be open to the fact that Susan is not an enemy anymore. Now yep. he sees that she's actually kind of a part of a larger plan, potentially, that Ka has in store for them. And he can accept her. Like, he, he before he was like, she's poison. I, I could, you know, I could kill her. But now he's reached the point where he not only is not angry at her and not angry at Roland, but, like, truly is sort of like a piece about the situation which i thought was really powerful like how quickly he melted from being like he's a mutie like our cotet is broken like the minute he saw his friend humble himself and recognize what he was doing like cooper was like all is forgiven well so. there's also a juxtaposition too where like so as they roll up uh to ria's hut um Cuthbert is like i'll go in with you and roland's like no you stay out here and you watch we're here to talk and like that leadership role becomes normal again. Yes, exactly. And, and like Cooper, the, the correct order like, has been returned. Like they yeah, returned to the right order. Yeah. He's like, okay, I, I trust you, and you know better than I do. You do this, and like that hasn't been the case this whole time. So like mm-hmm. now that Roland's cards are on the table and Cuthbert's cards are on the table, they're back to that the original structure of their group, which is is good um for now <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh so they roll to ria's place like roland uh tells keithbert to kind of like stay back um 
and they they get there and like Roland's describing and and Keith Bird are like looking around like there's muty vegetables things don't look good like it's there's a tree that's losing its leaves and like one mm-hmm. falls on his head mm-hmm. uh, which like that's foreshadowing I believe yo hundred um, percent there's a reason that the leaves are just like randomly falling on his head yes yeah and so like Roland looks in and like he doesn't see anything at first and then he realizes that he can kind of see Rhea. Mm-hmm. and Rhea she's also dim mm-hmm. yeah she's like running dim but like she realizes that Roland sees past her and kind of retreats into the shadows and and mm-hmm. tries to dim again and w- while she's doing that Roland is invoking the name of the white mm-hmm. and explaining that they've messed with the, the their car and that she's crossed them and this is their one warning <laughs> and these moments like I'm not 100% remembering the like significance of the white, mm-hmm. but like it doesn't matter because having that it's juxtaposition, like the, it's like the good. It's yep, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 So like the juxtaposition of Rhea, like slinking into the darkness and the white being the torch that, and the mantra that Roland and the group are carrying is, is so night and day that it, it doesn't really matter if you have any context, like, we're the good people. You're the bad person. Okay. You stay out of our way or else. All right. Really quickly, I looked up what the white is in terms of the actual um, definition according to the Dark Tower. Okay. So there is some degree of spoilers, like high level spoilers in this that I'm going to try to avoid. All right, guys. I'm going to turn a pipe upside down on the ground and leave a brown gross trail of ground up food. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to avoid it. But if you are very like spoiler averse skip forward about 10 seconds so essentially the white was the force of good within the dark tower series as a people they were allied together to protect the beams okay um and, and the beams are probably white as well yeah, probably and as an elemental force that represents they like they represent wholeness unity health and they're like the counterpart to the outer dark which is the dark side that is led by the crimson king okay oh, okay Spoilers over. But that's what that means. Clean up that mess you left on the ground. I'm sorry. I'm sweeping. I'm sweeping. Oh, it smells <laughs> terrible. I'm throwing oh, up. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, <laughs> oh imagine. Um, so, so yeah. So, Rhea, like, is upset, but also staying super quiet. Yeah. And Roland, like, sees just out of the corner of his eye a snake, well, a thing drop from the air. Yes. And Roland, thankfully, his instincts take hold. He, like, kicks one leg straight and kind of guides Rusher, and his hands take over and just bang, bang, bang. Mm-hmm. And the snake falls to the ground, like, decapitated and, like, bloody. Yeah. And Rhea screams, and Keith Bird is in awe at Roland's shooting skills. What like, shooting, Roland? Yeah. yeah, like, such a crazy good shooting game. And Roland, like, on face is like, yeah, of course. <laughs> but inside, he's like, thank God I've got reaction skills because that's the only thing that saved my ass. And it's sort of an interesting little bit because, like, to Keith Burt, Roland is basically proven that he is a gunslinger. Mm-hmm. And to Roland, like, he still hasn't stepped up to that mantle yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's, this is like maybe the first time he's experienced that feeling of having your hand, your, your 
hands just take over for you. I can't remember. Maybe there's some of that with the fight with David and Court, but I'm a little I, bit. There's like the shoot with um shoot with your your heart or something like that. I mean, I think he knows the creed, but like it's something that Eddie experiences and Susan experiences mm-hmm. where your hands just sort of take control and you can't always trust your hands because sometimes they'll take control but without you thinking and i think this is maybe maybe the first time he's experienced that specific thing um but it's definitely an it's a, a reoccurring thing throughout all of our, the gunslingers we know a um, reoccurring thing <laughs> we need that slide whistle <laughs> yeah so uh i don't know that roland could have played this worse knowing what we know about Rhea, I don't I don't think he could have been worse. Yeah. He, he so, goes in there, he likes he yells at her, he uses his like big gunslinger voice, and I think he feels like he sounded very commanding. But not only did he ratchet me out, he also threatened her, he wounded her pride, which we know is the worst thing. thing you can do with Rhea. It's what made her hate Susan was like the very small slight that Susan, where she was just like, I don't want to have sex with you. Um <laughs> and and Roland's in there talking about like Rhea, da- son or daughter of none. Daughter of none, yeah. You know, like you don't want to mess with me. I'm I'm, you know, a representative of the white. I'm with the affiliation. You don't know who the fuck you're messing with. And it's very condescending in a way that is going to trigger all of her buttons. Well, and- not just that, but he shot her snake exactly. and lover. Yeah. And, like, you, she doesn't answer, and he's just like, I'll take your silence to be consent. But, like, she answered. <laughs> she was going to kill you. And the the fact that he doesn't interpret that as, like, oh, this is not a problem solved. This is, a, this is an ongoing problem that I've just exacerbated, I think really shows you how naive he is. Well, here's the thing. So, like, when he shoots the snake and Rhea um, reacts, the snake coming to attack him, like he already knows that Rhea has some weird method of spying on him that like they couldn't torture out of her. Yeah. And yet he accepts the attack as like just par for the course when that should have, they, she already crossed one line and he allowed her to basically cross another line as opposed to like being like, well, that's it. Um, I know you're in the hut and that's the end for you. Yeah. I mean like that should have been, the moment that made him reassess the threat level. But reassess. In- oh my God, I'm doing it. I swear I'm not doing this on purpose. But yeah, I mean, he should have thought twice about this, but he's so young and so, this is his inexperience coming back, and arrogance coming back to get him. Like, he thinks he can just yell at this woman in an old hut and, like, evoke the name of the affiliation. Like, the affiliation has no freaking sway here, even if Rhea was not Rhea. Like, the affiliation ain't shit in Magus at this point. Um, but even when she tries to kill him, he just bounces. Uh, and, and I just don't think like literally the, he could not have done a worse job. Yeah. And he doesn't realize like the impact of the snake's death uh, with Rhea. And, and this like, is, this is the second oh. time we've seen him kind of like see evidence of really the, um, evidence of what he's dealing with in terms of his opponent and not reassess and change his methodology. He did it when he saw Jonas playing castles in the sheriff's office. Like Jonas is constantly reassessing. Um, 
uh, Will, but he's never doing it in return. And then he just did it again with Rhea. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, 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 you're right. And and so basically, like, those guys write off, like, uh, uh, Bert's patent rolling on the back on his great shots. Mm-hmm. And, like, Roland's, like, serves her right. Like, we did what we came here to do. And they write off. And Rhea comes out crying and like mm-hmm. in in an emotional distress over her lover and um my uh, friend yeah what's the fancy word for uh her familiar yes. um mm-hmm. so her lover and familiar is there dead headless and she like kisses its jaw like licks gets, its mouth yep oh. licks its mouth gets the last bit of venom and blood out whispers some incantations to try and save him but like he's thrown off the mortal coil get it because he's a snake Ah. (laughs) and basically like Rhea swears that she's gonna make these guys scream until their throats burn raw yeah and that sort of angry threat from Rhea isn't just um no, 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 no. And, like, you imagine, like, her normal plan was to just throw the, you know, the chicken among the wolves. Right. Um, but now she's like, I'm going to make them scream and pay. Yeah. So now we don't just have, you know, uh, DePape and those guys after him who really want to, like, show them what's up. We we have Rhea. Yeah. Now joining in, uh, uh, both of them wanting to see, you know, Roland specifically, but the group in general, like, scream and beg for their life yeah. and suffer to the highest extent possible. You're so right, yeah. And you should never stack, no, you know, like, that sort of vengeance on top of each other, right? Yeah, I mean, there is, basically at this point, with the exception of Cordelia, the every single, like, villain or antagonist in this, is it's not just, like, they're on opposing sides. The shit is personal now. Mm-hmm. They yeah, just, despise them. And, and like, uh, maybe I'm Damn. thinking too too far ahead, but I feel like uh, three strikes and you're out. So like, they've got yeah. two, two strikes against them. Who right. else are they going to piss off? I mean, I guess Thorin and Reimer could find out about him and Susan banging. Mm-hmm. Cordelia could find out about them banging. I mean, like, that's really the last bit of information that's out there hanging out there. Yeah, and I feel like it's – I don't remember because it's, it's been coming, a while, though. It's got to be. It's got to be coming. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a third party that's going to be, like, the trifecta. Well, I mean, Latigo's still out there. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, or, you know, uh, the man in black. Yeah, I mean, and the man in black already – man in black knows who he is. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. like, he already has his own issues with Roland. He wants to get – I mean, the reason they sent him – the whole reason that they are here in Magus is to get them away from the man in black. And what do you know? Here he is. He's in town. Like, they sent him to the literal worst place. Hey, guys, you miss me? Yeah, it wasn't even enough that they got caught and broiled in the shit that's, like, so above their pay grade. And that Roland is, like, flailing around, like, having sex with people and just – making himself vulnerable in a thousand different ways mm-hmm. crossing Rhea, crossing the mayor and the chancellor i mean and the gun you know the mercenaries in town but he, like the freaking man in black is there <laughs> like he is they are honestly i came away from this chapter like I, we've known they were in trouble for a long time they have never been so fucked as they are right now <laughs> they are yeah. so screwed at this definitely point. leveled up their game right 
Yes. Oh, I, I wanted to point out a little bit of language here because uh, I love the way Stephen King, the, the way that he describes things is so amazing. Just the use of, especially around Rhea. If you remember, I, I, I pointed out uh, when he, she's talking about wanting Susan's hair to be cut. She talks about like, I want her to cut her scruff and how that's like giant dandruff flakes. He does something similar here again, where he talks about, her picking up Irma and holding she held his head to one flattened old Doug and I was like Doug old Doug is that a breast it is the utter teat or nipple of a female animal (laughs) (laughs) just like Stephen King is like seriously his brain is the most upsetting thesaurus and I love it I wonder if he just like did a bunch of research to find other names for teats that he right? could... he's like, what's the grossest word for teat? That's like a half a day of research instead of writing because he's just like, I really got to nail this. Uh, yeah, movie. as a writer, uh, I I also know these these tactics of procrastination. <laughs> but yeah, a Doug, oh, a flattened mm. old Doug. Like you can just can't you just picture what that looks like? It is wide and narrow from the side. <laughs> right right it's just sort of like a little u-shape i mean uh, when you describe flat. that i i just think of like the um the south park uh teacher where she lifts her arms up and i don't remember but i oh. oh does she have like the bingo wings yeah well the uh, her udders hang down below her shirt so every time she lifts oh her... yes that is what i imagine ria's bosom is like yes her flattened old dugs oh <laughs> oh man so one other thing here before we wrap up because this is essentially it is that when roland and cooper are writing away in addition to talking about like hey dude good shooting their text um the other thing is is that roland is like listen we got to meet with susan we got to figure this out like she actually is really important and it just sort of marks this different to Roland up to this point where from the moment he met Susan and decided to keep her a secret because like that is literally the first thing he does when he meets her is he goes back to the camp and refuses he doesn't tell them anything about meeting Susan um this is the first time that he's like bringing these two worlds actively bringing these two worlds together like we're all gonna meet even when they went to the oil fields he would he they were all supposed to meet up and like uh, look around that place investigate that area but he sent them away so that they could be alone and could not even see roland and susan so this is the first time that he's really bringing those worlds together and i think it's it's evidence that he really did get a wake-up call and um he's changing his behavior here he's fucking up with Rhea, but at least he's doing this right so yeah yeah all right any other overall what'd you think of this chapter that was good. Um, a lot more depth and and so on than I was ex- expecting. Yeah. And uh, you know, I don't usually have to talk about toxic masculinity very often, so that was you know, it's different. Um, yeah. <laughs> and like, there, it's epic at the same time. Yeah. What about you? What do you think, Rachel? I loved this chapter. Like, I mean, here's the thing: is I loved and also cringed through this chapter. On one hand, it was so cathartic to finally have this confrontation between um Cuthbert and Roland I mean it has been building and building and building and building which is a good sign of writing that when it finally happened it didn't just feel like an event but it felt like an emotional release as a reader 
So, <laughs> so yeah, I loved that. I loved the confrontation. I loved him throwing the note at him. It was all very dramatic. But then, you know, what followed it was very beautiful and also complicated and interesting. And I love all the character, like, psychology stuff, as you know. So that I loved. But then also it's so hard to watch characters you love make terrible decisions. And I watched Roland make a terrible decision at the end of this chapter, confronting Rhea the way he did, totally throwing Shimi under the bus. I mean, the first thing that, that Cuthbert says when he gave him that note was like, I don't want Shimi to get in trouble for this. And Roland goes and runs his damn mouth and is like, the first thing he says is that Shimi gave him the note. <laughs> so like that part of it is infuriating and frustrating but um but also like it's affecting so that's a good sign that it was a good chapter so yeah this one was thumbs up for me i really really liked it (laughs) all right plan for the next episode we're going to be covering wizard and glass part three come reap chapter five wizard's glass so I'm guessing oh, we're going to learn some more about the pink oval. I sure hope so. I do think it's interesting that the wizard's rainbow also got a quick reference in this chapter. Yeah, that was actually I, I completely forgot about that. But like mm-hmm. when he's like, he's going to see colors like, yeah, and maybe even wizard colors. That's only an extra penny. Like, wait, what? Yeah. So I think we're that's a little foreshadowing. Uh, like it's doing a little um, seeding in of a little like, um you know, mythology a little bit. Like, oh, this is mm. a saying. <laughs> no, it's not. We've never heard this before, but okay. And now the next <laughs> chapter is called Wizard's Glass. Cool. Got it. So I'm excited to see what happens there. All right. Connections to the Stephen King universe. None that I saw again this time, but if I missed something, please do let me know. And that just leads us to our Facebook question. Uh, this is casting for um, Mr. Black, right? Yes. Uh, as soon as you ask me, and like normally, I just want to. Uh, for some reason, I always want to go to the, the dude that played um, in the original uh, um, band series. Okay, I just Jamie love that guy so much. Sheridan, I think his name is. Yeah, but mm-hmm. he does not fit for this description. No, of the man in black at all. Mm-mm. No, and so like immediately when you just asked me like snap judgment, I was like Steve Buscemi. That's not a bad choice because it's like he's described as being kind of like a smaller guy. Um, yeah, and wiry. And then like imagine Steve Buscemi shimmy with sharp teeth. Like ooh. his teeth are already like a little out of control. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But like he has a sinister and also like commanding level of terror. Mm-hmm. Especially like you, you think about – what is it? Who's the guy that was uh, the – bad guy in the first spider-man movie like throws the pumpkins and rides around the green it's the dad Mm -hmm. um i forget what that guy's name is uh but like steve buscemi is him times a million (laughs) and like yeah uh, is it defoe that play i think it's defoe that yeah 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 Yeah, it is willem defoe who is gasher he's already our definitive casting for gasher yeah exactly and like so you need to go next level for this guy and, right. like, the description that we get is, like, a cackling, evil, mm-hmm. weird guy that's uh, smaller in demeanor. Mm-hmm. And so Bashimi like, fits those categories and also has, like, the pointy shapes of body parts that just, like, make him yeah. like, easily fit in there. And you can even just imagine Steve Bushimi smoking a cigarette with, like, pointy teeth and mm-hmm. be like, you hungry for some cold food? Yeah. Yeah. 
That's not a bad choice. I'm going a totally different direction, but oh. I think Steve, it, you need somebody who has charisma, um, and who, but who can also be menacing. And I think Steve Buscemi is definitely can do both of those things. So I think that's a good choice. So I last time we were joking, and I was saying I think that the actor who plays Harold Lauder in The Stand should be a uh, Man in Black. That actually. Still- it's not bad. He's actually, especially, I mean, this week we saw some more of that. And uh, yeah, there's some Man in Black vibes there, for sure. That definitely falls in, in line with my Steve Buscemi pick. Because yes. like he has like a, a young feel, of, uh, maybe not quite as classical as Steve Buscemi, just because he's played so many roles that he like fits in your brain in a different way. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. he's definitely got the pointiness and the like charisma and the weirdness that's going on there. Yes. And I mean, that guy can he can act. This is whether you like the stand or not. I think both opinions are totally valid because there's good things and there's bad things. But the one thing I came away from it being like that dude is a star in the making. He can act his face off. Um, but he's not my. He is sort of like my ancillary pick. But he is sort of the path that I took to get to my final pick. And it's something a little different. But stay with me. So if you remember in the stand, he is constantly trying to put on this front of being like a human. And the person that he looks to to be the human is Tom Cruise. (laughs) I want you to imagine Tom Cruise as the man in black. So Mm. he has that like charisma. He's small in stature and built strong, but he also has that crazy. So I could see him kind of slipping between those two and being pretty freaking creepy. So the problem with Tom Cruise for me, Mm -hmm. and maybe I'm like looking too much into it, but Tom Cruise always felt like in a lot of his roles that he was fighting against small man syndrome. Yes. And so that small man syndrome isn't be fitting of someone of of the man in black's nature. True. Because the man in black is like an outwardly always confident and evil person. Mm-hmm. And Tom Cruise always sat with me as the like, I need to do more so that I can show that I have beaten this small man complex. Yeah. That's and true. That's, maybe that's just me. I, I don't just know. feel like his narcissism is so intense that it would it would lend itself well to like the confidence of the man in black. And if you've ever seen that video of Tom Cruise on the red carpet where somebody sprayed him with water, he's no, I scary when he's mad. But I've seen him talking about eating placentas. <laughs> I mean, he's that's... a fucking weirdo. Listen, I love those. I am the number one fan of those Mission Impossible movies. <laughs> I am. I am so excited about those movies when they come out. I am unbearable. I, it's all I can think about and talk about when they're coming out. And the things that that man is willing to do to his body for my entertainment is my kink. Okay? Like, I love those movies. But he is also <laughs> an absolute nutcase. And I feel like those two things are the two, those two opposing things are exactly what you need for the man in black. And I'm just thinking about that creepy as like half insane smile he gives. Like imagine if he was just like, oh, Frank Sinatra, he was quite a crooner. What do you think about Derbingle? Like imagine him saying that. It just, it to me, it works. It works. Hmm. 
and like, yeah, maybe and his arrogance would allow him to be like yes i will be stephen king's ultimate villain you know what i mean i could see him getting totally getting into it i mean he might matthew mcconaughey it which is the the problem but i don't know he's just like he's like, like into it. dirt facing his way through it like i'm matthew mcconaughey look at me i i do not understand what happened there he's such a good actor but they weren't they didn't give him much to work with like he yeah. has like one or two lines and he just needs to look menacing yeah and like matthew mcconaughey he sails when like he has a bunch of weird stuff to deliver and like a character to play not when he's like he's silent scary. man scary i don't think he does scary i think that's part of the problem yeah maybe i mean like it, anybody could do scary if like dolled up correctly but i don't know i feel like there needs to be sort of this quiet menace and sense of like being dangerous and he doesn't strike me as someone he doesn't come across as scary or dangerous which i mean that would make him good to play like a serial killer or something so maybe i don't know i don't know like he just was like weirdly gothy i don't know weirdly gothy okay so i put that question same question out to our listeners i asked for their dream casting which i can't believe i haven't done this already which is wild but here's what we what the listeners had to say tim says he'd like to see jeffrey dean morgan he has the charisma and charm as well as the menace and venom necessary to play the role uh and he's not going to phone it in like someone whose name rhymes with Matthew McGonagall. <laughs> so here's the thing: is like I don't I know you probably don't have any idea who Jer- uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is, but I'm gonna full circle this for you. He is the actor who played the the um the comedian in The Watchmen. Oh, that's kind of interesting, right? Like I went to him as like a reference earlier. Exactly. In the show, so like... <laughs> <laughs> that's a unique full circle like i couldn't tell you the guy's name i just knew that he was in the watchman yep so that is <laughs> that i mean he also is negan who's like the super bad although i don't think he's bad anymore i don't because i haven't watched it in 10 years of uh walking dead if people watch walking dead okay so he also said um there was also a time when jeff fahey would have been a good choice i think i'm thinking 80s 90s fahey like his performance in Psycho 3. He's outstanding at playing smarmy dudes with rugged good looks and mischievous charm. And as a fae he had, let me say I approve of this suggestion. Now, do you know who Jeff he is? I mean, I just Googled him and I recognized his face. He's man! <laughs> yeah, I recognize young him. I don't know that I recognize old him very much. No, he's thinking, well, he thinks that like he would have been good in his heyday of young he. <laughs> i remember we had like a fahey month on the splatter cast we watched a bunch of his movies he's like so i, I don't know i thought he he might be too pretty as a young man to like really be that character but okay. maybe i'm wrong okay all, uh. right. all right so sheldon says he would like to see gary oldman he thinks he would be awesome as flag who gary oldman is <laughs> i don't know who i, I obviously every s- time we do this i prove myself un knowing of every actor's name never so he i'm trying to think what you would know he was in the fifth element he was like the guy with the that's forehead would bleed he was like the main bad guy oh yeah 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 um he had his own sitcom for a while didn't he he's like a weird british actor he was also mm. in true romance he was the like pimp at the beginning that they kill 
I know which guy you're talking about, but I thought, didn't he have like, he played like a Southern guy and had like a short-lived one or two season. That would be uh, a wild twist. Gary Oldman. You you might be right. Sitcom? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's some guy that just looks very similar to Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. No, I don't think so. Oh, wait, maybe. Hold on. Uh no, this is a different guy. Okay, J.K. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I, I was thinking of the main guy that wears the hat, the, like the main bad guy. No, this is the main bad guy, right? He has like a clear thing on his forehead. Yeah, he wears that like thing, and like he's talking to the the dark force and the yeah, yeah. Okay, that it, yeah. Then damn, who well, looks just like him? Oh. I don't know why. <laughs> Okay, okay, uh, okay. All right, Um. right, let's see here. Sarah, oh no, sorry. John says he'd like to see Chris Heyerdahl is my choice hand down. Look at some of the roles he played as like the Swede on Hell, Hell on Wheels, Sam from Van Helsing. He can play all aspects of Randall Flagg. He is, th- this actor is very creepy and I agree that he can do pretty much whatever he wants. Does he have the charisma? Hmm. I don't know maybe i mean maybe he just hasn't had that opportunity to do it he certainly looks the part although he might be too tall i don't know hmm. but i'm into it i i would i would uh i'd allow it okay yeah i'm just gonna let you you nail these because i don't know <laughs> okay well maybe you'll know this one next one okay so so sarah my co-host on the zombie girl said she would like to see late 80s early 90s sam elliott you think sam elliott like that's actually someone i recognize yeah like he's such a cowboy guy like yeah i i think we've kind of like picked him for other stuff right i think he would have been i think we wanted him for jonas yeah because the mustache and like the dour expression like lends less towards crazy and more towards like deep thinking right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think yeah. so like he feels like a i mean like he feels like a wandering stranger. i mean I, again we're just going big lebowski now I'm like he's like a wandering stranger oh wait no he's already <laughs> played that role <laughs> okay so troy says he would like to see either adam driver or michael shannon play the role adam driver is that like mini driver's husband no he is uh kylo ren from the star wars movies hmm He's a very, very, very good actor, and he does. He's so angsty, though. Yeah, is that that's the so that's the like brooding guy with the big nose. Hmm. Yeah, doesn't John o. Oliver do like a bit about him all the time? Probably. I mean, he was really funny when he was on SNL. Where he, mm. Yeah. Um. I I actually love Adam Driver. Love. He's always he's a very, very, very skilled actor. I'm trying to think if he could. I mean, although he could be creepy and crazy if he wanted to be. I'm well, coming he's around. tall, I'm coming and he around. has dark hair, and he, like, has pointy features. Um, Sure, I- I'll give you that one. Okay, what about Michael Shannon? I think Michael Shannon would be a really good choice, because he uh, really Googles. plays creepy. Yeah, yeah, look, look him up. So he was, like, uh, he was in the, what's the name of the character from the new Superman? He's, like, the main bad guy in the first Superman movie. Um, uh, the one that gets locked into the crystal. Yes, but in the new version, but that same character, Z- General uh, Zog. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So he was him. He's been. He always plays really creepy characters. 
uh, and he's a very, very good actor. I mean, he's oh, just yeah, a he has villain. the low brow for it. Um, yeah. I, I recognize this guy as a, a rando from like lots of weird stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like he's got that face that belongs in train spotting. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that, he's that's... he looks like a heroin act. Yeah, and that's the that's the face of madness. I think so. Like, yeah, you can do it. I think you can do it. Okay. All right. Uh oh, okay. There's some good ones coming up. Okay, so Sarah came back and she suggested Tom Hardy, like the writer. No, Tom Hardy. He was in um, he was in a Venom movie. He was in he was Bane in Batman. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the thing Bane. is, he's a he's an actor who totally transforms. I mean, I'm looking at him now, and he just kind of looks like a GQ dude. He's very handsome. But like look at every him. shot look. is him with his shirt like half open and like a that like casual smirk and like hair slicked back look like yeah. He does. But he is someone who looks very different in different roles. Like he does like the full body transformation. Like if you look mm. at him in Bronson, you would not even recognize him. Holy crap! He like uh, yeah. I told you he looks real, real. This is like he does the full body transformation stuff. Whew. And he's a really good actor. So, I, yeah, I could get behind Tom Hardy. Also, more Tom Hardy is more. Okay, so <laughs> Jeremy says Tom Hiddleston would be interesting. But if we're going to go back in time, I remember King talking about Jeff Goldblum back when he did The Fly and even Christopher Walken back in the 80s, of course. I think both Christopher Walken and Jeff Goldblum have, like, that same vibe Yeah, that I was sort of aspiring to with Steve yeah. Buscemi. Yeah, um, I think Jeff Goldblum in in the eighties is the actually is the answer. Well, I don't know. So Christopher Walken, like, remember when he was doing all of those like um, those Jesus movies? Oh, like the prophecy. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, 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 yeah. And that like, was it, a good one. He is super creepy in all of those, and like, I, I don't know if Christopher Walken's cadence of sort of stopping every other word and yeah. then beginning again would work i mean that's how you get a 10 year long uh palaver (laughs) uh but goldblum like has that gait but in a slightly faster and sort of like sporadic burst there's a movie that jeff goldblum did in the 80s called mr frost where he's like essentially the devil what yeah it's pretty good i would recommend it maybe if it's on tubi you should bring it up on the deadland on dead lantern it's called mr frost and uh okay yeah 1990 yep there you go 1990 like that that version of him i think would be really good and like he has the like confusing sexiness that i would be like i'm very attracted to the man in black but he is very (laughs) terrible like that is actually sort of perfect so yeah yeah i i'm now like i'm now very close (laughs) to calling him definitively the man in black he may have beat out my choice for for tom cruise Okay. Um okay. I vaguely remember this movie and now I'm like right? having weird weird things thinkings about it. You're having weird thinking. I remember him like what sleeping with a lady. Well like I, I don't know if I'm just mixing stuff together, but it's sort of I sort of remember like a Jeff Goldblum like like uh rated PG thirteen sex scene. Yes. Oh it's yeah, that's probably it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And like I was trying to remember where it was from and then like as soon as I saw this cover 
I'm like, that, it's got to be this movie, right? Yeah, I think it's, yeah. But I mean, look at, would you look at that mullet? Come on, imagine <laughs> that, like, in the hood. It'd be perfect. Yeah, so uh, Jeff Jeff Goldblum might be might be the choice. Okay, uh, all right. So Jeremy says, sadly enough, McConaughey ha- just had nothing to work with, which is literally what we said. Um, that awful script they came up with. He could have been an amazing flag all the way through, especially when you see him in True Detective season one. It's really sad that the whole thing did not work out, dude. I'm I'm liking this belatedly because these are facts that he's spitting right now. <laughs> facts. Oh man, what if that? Like, let's imagine another universe, like in the multiverse, where that movie was amazing. Right now, we'd be like on the cusp of like movie number two or three. Although it'd probably be pushed back, and we'd be complaining about it being pushed back. But if that had been like incredible and it started the series, that would have been real cool. <laughs> but unfortunately, yeah, we're in the darkest timeline because he turned you, on the you Hadron can dream, collider. but you've you've gotten the wrong timeline here. Yeah, I, I I blame the Hadron Collider for that movie. Okay, so final suggestion. This one comes from Brandon, who I think this may be the first time Brandon's weighed in. So this is exciting. He suggests Andrew Scott. Do you have any idea who that is? Probably not. Uh, no idea. Okay. Sorry. So he was he um he's been in a bunch of things. Like he's probably most famous for um can't think of the that name. Forehead. Yeah, I mean he definitely has a forehead. But uh <laughs> it'll be good. You can put the it's perfect for the put the Crimson King sigil there, it'll be great. No, but <laughs> he was Moriarty in the Sherlock the, the most recent version of that Sherlock BBC series. Did you watch that with like uh benedict cumberbatch and frodo uh i watched a little bit of it danny watched most of it um so So she would know who adam scott is then yeah she would definitely know who adam scott is well he plays a very creepy villain very well so this is actually Hmm. a deeper cut but totally solid one good job yeah i'm looking at pictures from him as moriarty and like he straight faces it and does this weird like chin up thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he and his face naturally exercises eyebrows. He his his face naturally kind of does that like the Kubrick. What is it called? Like there's like a Kubrick thing where he whenever he's showing like people going crazy, he does a thing where like he has their heads tilt forward and look up while the camera looks yeah, down. Yeah, it's the like Jack Nicholson look. Like yes, it's, y- it's a utilizes famous eyebrows. Shot. Yeah, yeah. It's a famous shot that he uses throughout his films. Like it's in um a full metal jacket it's in shining it's in the one with private pile or that's full metal jacket um it's the lighting too because like they do that thing where the light comes from a certain source so it casts shadows under both of your eyes yeah yeah and i think he could like make that face very easily so so yeah Hmm. andrew scott i'm still jeff goldblum is swaying me though i really feel like we we have centered in on our perfect casting if we could like travel through time and space and pluck him out of a very specific era like now he's like sexy grandpa so he couldn't do it but in the 90s <laughs> when he sexy was like grandpa. he had like a little bit of danger mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like jurassic park era when he yeah, was like he's, he's getting too up zaddy there, but now. not too far yeah he's just too zaddy now so he can't do it okay all right, so that is it from our Facebook group. For those of you at home, if you haven't joined the Facebook group, what are you waiting for? Join us. Join in the conversation. Uh, we post these questions every other Monday or Tuesday, so we would love to hear your feedback on all of these questions. And 
That just leaves our review of episode five of The Stand, Fear and Loathing in New Las Vegas. So I have the synopsis here. Now, originally I was breaking it up by character, but now I kind of feel like the best way to approach this is the two locations. Because our characters have really moved into being in one camp or the other. And so because it's, although there wasn't as much back and forth in time this time, there was a lot of back and forth between the two places. So we kind of followed the one girl quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then, like, we got a little bit of the dude cleaning up the, you know, yeah. the the murder pool. Harold, the main character of the stand. Yep. Yes. And then you got, <laughs> yep. And then you got Harold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like just a weird. They stuck on to people a lot longer this time as opposed to just like yeah. flash, flash, flash. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it, the show has essentially abandoned most of its characters, but we'll get into it. Okay. All right. So let's start with what's happening in Colorado. So we have Harold, who is struggling after Teddy's death, and he's upset with Nadine for killing him, but also afraid that their staged suicide won't be convincing. Franny, of course, rightly, is suspicious of Harold. So she invites him over for dinner to give Larry the opportunity to break into Harold's house and snoop around. And on. When he's just about to go there, Nadine shows up on his doorstep attempting to seduce Larry, which, as book readers know, there was like a whole backstory for. But in this show, just randomly, suddenly she wants to bang him. Um, Essentially, she thinks if she loses her virginity to him, she'll like be free of flag. And Larry, of course, because like audiences of the show feel like this came out of absolutely nowhere <laughs> and so he's like no nah, dog i'm good maybe tomorrow um so maybe he goes tomorrow. to <laughs> right. so he goes to harold's and he finds nadine's shirt but that's about it he almost gets caught uh but gets out in time but when harold gets home he can tell that someone has been there and we find out that he apparently has a bunch of cameras so he sees that it was larry he also is a mega creeper and has turned <laughs> on a nanny cam to watch Stu and franny hooking up in the bedroom yeah, what a what a weirdo. <sighs> yeah. All right. So, oh, also we have a little side thing with Mother Abigail essentially being butthurt about them getting sending spies without talking to her. And so at the end of the episodes, she prays for advice, um, doesn't get it. Instead, she gets a visit from Flag in the wolf? Yeah, it's like Flag in the form of a wolf, essentially. And so she decides, I guess, to go on some sort of pilgrimage so she she bounces and just leaves a note behind all right (laughs) so what are you thinking about all this stuff in colorado um so like harold again like shines is a is probably one of the best actors in this i mean yeah he's the main character of the show he's carrying the whole thing so that's good he sits down at this table with those guys and like tells this story and he's like remember and she's like i don't know and he's like remember and he's like she's like yeah I, i think so well, good, because you weren't there, or I wasn't there. Yeah. I <laughs> and it's was... like, what? I mean, it I, it shows you how good at manipulating them he is, where he, and how unable to just to act like a normal person for an extended period of time, that he rolls out this story and, like, totally pulls them along and then pulls out the rug from under them, and then the mood, like, it's such a mood killer. Mm-hmm. Which, I, I mean, I get why the show is obsessed with him. He's by far the most interesting person but it's also like strange it's just strange that they have basically centered the show around him yeah and well i guess i don't know yet because this may not follow the 
the same trajectory, but like I thought Harold kind of like dies towards the middle end. And so then like, yeah, I don't know. Who's going to carry it after that? If they I mean, follow with that trajectory. I mean, I know King wrote a different ending, so maybe. Oh, is this going to be like different from the books then? Yeah, supposedly. I don't know. I mean, it's ended. I'm sure I could look it up and find out, but as far as nah, I know, let's not do that yet. yeah, no, 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 let's definitely not do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe, what is ultimately going to come as a result of this is we'll be like, oh, this is why Harold is the main character. Like maybe they chose him as a through line because they adjusted his his arc and it'll make sense. But as a book reader watching this, it's very confusing to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, so overall, that was like kind of uneventful other than Harold just stealing the show again. <laughs> yeah, I this is probably this episode is probably the closest I've come to just disliking Not, an yeah, episode. Yeah, just like being done with it. Yeah, the only part that was like, that really held my attention was when Larry was in the house and and Harold was coming home because we actually had a little bit of tension. Um, but it well, like and then kind there's of... that like moment where it's like, who locks their basement? <laughs> right, right. I mean, you haven't seen Mr. Mercedes, but it was like, I was like, wait a minute, is Harold turning into the guy from Mr. Mercedes? Because he's like got his like all his cameras down in his basement. Um and it looked exactly like the basement from Mr. Mercedes. It's just weird. It's just a weird <laughs> thing. But I, I don't know, man. It's just very... I feel like the show does not care about its heroes at all. They're all basically... We got a couple of backstories, and I thought that we were going to flesh them out moving forward. Like, it was going to be, like, Lost style. But instead, it's, like, just given us enough for us to understand, like, the archetype of, type of the character. You know, like, Stu is just, like, your boring, run-of-the-mill hero. Larry is not quite as boring. He's like boring light, but essentially he is a stew with a little bit more flavor. Nick is sad and handsome and I guess kind, but that's kind of all we know about him. Franny pregnant. Is that her whole character? <laughs> I, I don't know. Glenn had potential, but he's not even in this episode. And then, but like also mother Abigail, we're just not getting any, character development with these characters and it's very annoying like it's very much leaning on you having read the book and have any idea of differentiating these characters with the exception of their appearance yeah i wonder like coming at this from a person who had never had any experience with the stand whatsoever if they're just confused and like hang up on it i i would not be surprised i mean they probably are just like why is this considered to be like Stephen King's masterpiece there's just it's there's nothing here it it feels derivative of like so many other um sort of post-apocalypse stories when in reality it's it works the other way like most shows are or most post-apocalyptic stories are derivative of the stand <laughs> you know <laughs> but it doesn't it, it's not coming across in this at all um like i mean especially if you take for instance like dana's character but poor dana who the hell is dana we have no idea if you don't have book knowledge she's just somebody who like will kill someone with a crowbar like that's all you know about dana and so when she goes out, when I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, like, th it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, you're right. You know, like, you only got a little bit of development from her at the very beginning. And then, like, the scattershot while she's, like, wandering around the Vegas hotel. Yeah. And, yeah. Like, a, like, a second where she's working in Hoover Dam. 
which I've been down that particular chute that they like zoom out of. And that is not what's down there. No, <laughs> no. I was like super irritated when they like cut from that and they like do the window fly out and then uh-huh. up to the top of Hoover Dam. I'm like, I've worked in there. It does not look like that. Oh, that's so crazy. I guess. Yeah, it makes sense that you would have worked in there. I knew a friend of mine's brother worked. He was in the military and he worked in there. And all I know is that like lots of people go there to kill themselves. Yeah, they have um there's a cleanup crew on yeah. standby to because they don't jump off the water side, they jump off of the the building yeah. side. Yeah. And so they usually end up on one of the powerhouses. Ooh, so yep. grim. And then it's roof of, roof cleanup. Ooh, so grim. But the Hoover Dam itself is very pretty. <laughs> oh yeah. I guess yeah. there are worse places to go. It's uh it's a beautiful, weird place in the middle of a desert. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, much like Vegas itself. <laughs> All right, so yes, Dana Jurgens. Let's get let's talk about her and let's talk about Vegas. So she is one of the spies who has made her way to Vegas, where uh, she's been asking around about Flag, and that has caught uh, his attention and the attention of Julie Laurie, who was the crazy woman that Nick and Tom met on the road, mm-hmm. who has now become the girlfriend of Flag's second in command, Lloyd uh, Lloyd Heinrich, who was. The guy that was like in the prison cell becoming a cannibal. Pseudo girlfriend of? Because like she's kind of yeah. like like just putting up with him because he's at a point of power almost. Right. And like not even fucking him. I know. <laughs> she is not even banging him. So and then so we see him again and they come and get Dana and they show around Vegas and they make her they kind of like start to make her a part of their thruple. But of course their thruple. Yeah, I mean essentially. <laughs> um and then while they're like out and about, Julie spots Tom Cullen, who is now in the gladiator pits cleaning up the bodies after the little fights or whatever. And Julie, she sees Julie see him and gets suspicious. So she tries to warn him to run, but unfortunately, we know that Tom cannot read. He can be adorable, though. Again, again, I love Tom so much. I can't, that's the one thing I cannot complain about at all, is Tom is amazing. Um, and they, she finally gets her wish, she gets to meet Flag. When she gets there, she thinks she's going to, like, maybe pull a fast one, but he already knows she's a spy, and he basically just brought her up there because he can't figure out the identity of the third spy. But rather than give up Tom like a boss, she goes out, she kills herself uh, with a broken bottle. Well, first she stabs him in the neck, yes. thinking that'll, like, actually kill him. Yes. And then, like, he does a good job of theatrically throwing himself down and then just, like, yeah. pops back up and pulls it out of his neck. And, yeah. like, does devil eyes on her. Yes. And, yeah. like, there's lots of ways to torture you. And she breaks the bottle like she's going to go at him. And then, like. Yep. Yeah. So, I will say there were two things in this section that I did like before I get into all of the things I didn't. <laughs> I love the moment where she. Like, I didn't love. I liked the moment where she sees Flag on that giant Hunger Games projector. And he, the, his image looks at her. It's, I thought it was visually kind of creepy and effective. So I'll give it up to that. Okay. I also enjoyed the moment of his performance where he comes back to life. And he's just like, oh, Stanislavski taught me that acting is reacting. And that kind of energy that he had for that brief moment felt like the flag that we're reading about in the book. You know yeah, what I mean? flamboyant and interesting. Yes. Yes, kind of a like almost jokester a little bit. Yes. Like he at the end he just like huffs and sits down on the couch. I'm like, no. 
that is not that's a, that's not right that's not right i don't know yeah. what did you think of the vegas scene um so like it felt like they didn't quite have their heart in it they yeah. had like this misogyny business going on where like everybody's like i guess we're in s&m gear and like touching mm-hmm. butts but it wasn't like butts. <laughs> well i mean like it was like it was like hey guys put this on um we're supposed to be like debaucherous and like someone's like oh i i think i saw this in a movie one time yeah and so like that it's just super silly like people sort of dancing like some of the outfits are just like laughable in their uh-huh. setup and approach and uh-huh. then like even the murder pit like there was they, no murder shown in the murder pit. I mean, I, there's one guy. I think he like sawed somebody at the very oh, beginning. Okay, and you get like a second of that, but like then it's just like dudes with tags on their chests, like being ushered into this space, and yeah. like a weird thing going on around it, and then like you just cut to like body parts in the in this pit again, and it's like, wh- why even bother then? Like, what's yeah, what's the point? And then the announcer lady like. They spend more time focusing on her and her excitement over, you know, people showing up mm-hmm. than they do on the character development. Yeah. And it's like, who cares? This girl's in here for like 10 seconds. I do well, love why? that actor, but I and I hope they do something more with her. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, if they do, then that's fine. But if if it's just that and then she's done, it's like, well, then. Yeah. What are we doing here? So she's what? rat woman. She was, she was, there was a rat man in the original and they've like gender flipped it. And I, but okay. I don't really remember rat man. Do you? <laughs> One of my, okay. I have a lot of complaints, but let me just start by just saying like the weirdest thing to me about this was how small it made Vegas feel. Didn't it feel super yeah. clearance racky? Like the whole shtick at vegas is how like big and over the top and glamorous and and campy it is and then this felt like you only have like two buildings that are actually occupied with anything well i mean it felt like and hoover dam it felt like the middle part of like i don't know like a super eight or something it did not feel it felt like somewhere you would go for spring break and and college or something Mm. as opposed to a massive casino like casinos are massive they're huge they're over the top and like the rooms themselves like when they were in the hotel rooms looked okay but that center sort of courtyard area was absurd to me it looked nothing like vegas it looked like either a set it looked like the clearance rack version of vegas or like they had taken that show blood drive and mashed it up with jezebels from handmaid's tale and they're like okay this is new vegas <laughs> I'm like no 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 i don't know i was trying to figure out if i recognized that balcony area from anywhere in vegas because like I've, I've had to go to vegas a lot i mean like it mu- if anything it's like i don't know like well no so uh that's a popular hotel style um for uh, what's the one that used to have the creeks that ran through the middle um embassy suites that's yes that's what it yeah. looks like it looks so like, like sweets yeah yeah so when i was staring at that i'm like i don't remember this in vegas at all Mm-mm. but then i started like bruising through pictures of embassy suites online and i'm like wait a minute <laughs> did they just like i think they do did. up in embassy suites to be like vegas and like that's it because i would not be surprised because you're right like the balconies are too close together like the pool is kind of small at the bottom like Mm -hmm. like a little silly even the bar area around the pool is just like regular size yeah and and then and and i'm back to the costumes but like 
it's like they didn't even like have much heart in it. Like even when uh, um, what's his name, the second in command is like taking pictures of someone's butt. It's just like kind of like half-assed and and not really like yeah. I, it just didn't feel like anybody was really like yeah, I got this. They look like they went and got like all the sexy outfits from like Spencer's and were like, yeah, all right, rated that's going to be Vegas. And what's annoying is this is like a huge departure from the book. I don't know if you remember much about Vegas from the book, but it was not, it was like the opposite of this. I thought it was like business and like business, business, business. Like they well, were. Yeah. Instead of getting, okay. So like in the book, it's. And I think this is a huge mistake because I feel like this whole like, ooh, hedonism thing is just so freaking basic. But in the book, <laughs> Vegas is this like fascistic, militant, smoothly operating, trains on time underneath like an authoritarian nightmare leader, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's, business, business, business. Yeah. Like there's crucified bodies outside, no drugs, no nothing. It's like crackdown. And like part of what makes it scary is that especially if you compare it to like the rinky dink operation in Colorado, they just seem more powerful, but instead we get this weird puritanical sex party. No, no. I I feel like it totally undercuts part of what makes flags so scary. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's this weird, you know, prime time, mad max sex party i don't know and like and now lloyd is like this weird party city frat boy pimp i i don't know it's not scary it's weird i don't like it it undercuts what makes flag scary and like the other thing and this is like a personal thing but i do not think that i miss the fact that the only time in this entire series that we've even seen a hint of queerness it's at it's in vegas with these weird sad sex parties you know <laughs> And you juxtapose it against we're having like dinner parties and these like super homonormative family family like dinner parties in in Boulder versus these like you know bondage feathery homosexuals in Vegas and I'm just like what are we trying to say here where are we getting it where is this like it, it just felt really regressive and strange to me and well I, I don't know I mean like I guess the book was written in like what the but this isn't like the 90s. book. This isn't no, like that's the book. true. So they the book actually... was more was actually more resonant today hmm. than it than this whatever the fuck this is. <laughs> well, I, I don't disagree with you. Like it would have been nice to have like that dead like me scene where like you know husband and husband are like making dinner together or something like that. Yes, but I don't know. Like. I lean less on the Boulder, Colorado thing and more like just on the silliness of how yeah. it's portrayed in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Because like if you're going to play it all straight, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But like then you throw this in and you make it kind of weird. Well, I like, mean, I don't know. And like done poorly, it, it, it just didn't feel like maybe heart's not in it is the wrong term, but it it, it didn't feel necessary or even like of value to those particular scenes to have like the murder pool other than to like introduce the fact that um that the dude's like working in the cleanup crew yeah and, like that's it and like you could have given him he went to a job agency you could have written in anything you wanted exactly exactly and like i don't know the i mean uh, let me just say one more thing on the queerness thing is that there's also on top of this there's Part of it is that Dana in the book is bisexual 
And there's like complete erasure of her character, including that aspect. So instead we just see her like reluctantly making out for like for survival purposes in Uh, the one place where queerness is happening in the series. And I'm just like, hmm. I don't like it. I don't, I mean, I'm sure it's not intentional. Like they're not like, okay, look, this is all the homosexuals are bad and they're going to, but like it is, it, it kind of without realizing it tips their hand to be like, part of what's going to make this hell and hedonistic is for there to be like visible queerness. And yeah, I I guess I didn't really think about it from the perspective of like, Oh, these people are all bound for hell. Right. Exactly. Like these are the people who are indulging their darkest desires. Like everybody is kind of has these two choices that they're going to make between their best self and their worst self. And depending on which way you go, Abigail or flag, you're, you have decided to indulge that side of yourself. And so for that to be where all of the gayness is shown is to me kind of problem. I mean, it may not be um, intentional on the part of the writers, but it's like a deeply it's it's still problematic. I mean, I guess to, to defend Boulder a little bit, like they have hippies sleeping out in front of right. Mother Abigail's house and like people are getting stoned and stuff like that. So right. they're getting a little like hair hair down. And... Yeah, but it's it's specifically around queerness that I'm having the issue. Like, uh, OK, OK. Yeah, if, like that the only place we see it depicted is in the place where the people are like giving into their animalistic nature. Like, there is something homophobic about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, it's like, yeah, that is a little bit like Ugh. contrasty in a way that's sort of. Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. Am I going to keep watching? I am. But for the first time, I'm not like excited to watch the next episode because I've been kind of holding out this hope for the last few episodes that like Vegas was, is going to redeem things. And if yeah. anything, it like deepened my disappointment. Yeah, it hasn't really hasn't really been a great <laughs> a, a great show per se. Um, yeah, I mean we're at the like we're over the halfway point. Maybe and there's still a lot of book left. Like maybe we're it's gonna be it's gonna pick up. Maybe. What do you think? Any chance? Uh, so people I've talked to ancillarily who doesn't don't want to spoil it for me are like. You're just going to be confused at the end. Okay. And so, like, I don't have high hopes that this is going to be amazing. Um, Like, production-wise, like, good job. You know, you're spending yeah, money on, great. on Stephen King product. But, like, what are you doing here? You know, I remember in the lead-up to this, there was, like, all these, like, photos of Vancouver where there were, like, bodies hanging from things. And it looked really creepy. And I feel mm-hmm. like we didn't end up seeing that. I wonder if, like, they had an initial cut, it didn't test well with their, like, captive audience, and then they, like, went back to the cutting room floor and trimmed it up or changed it out. I feel like, and I, yeah, maybe, maybe they, like, softened it. Because, like, I'm thinking about those first couple of episodes and how, like, it really kind of went for it, both with the depiction of of Captain Trips, but also, like, do you remember the shootout in that gas station and how gruesome that was? Now, compare that to what we got in this, like, gladiator pit yeah i feel like one of them was rated tvma and one of them is rated tv well so the the thing with the gas station shootout though is like that's a small scene overall Mm -hmm. so it's easy to accommodate something like that 
when you start expanding out into these larger, more like high production, lots of body parts things, mm-hmm. like maybe they just peaked past their budget per episode. Maybe. So I don't know. I the mean, other those embassy is, suites don't come cheap, I guess. Well, so usually if you're gonna if you're gonna have body parts all over the place and and gore effects like that you're gonna have as much camera time on it as possible because regardless of whether you just blow past it or not it costs money to create yeah and and so you want to utilize it and to me usually if that sort of thing's on set and it doesn't make it in it's not because they didn't film a bunch of it it's probably because like someone didn't think that it matched with whatever flavor or tone or whatever that they were trying to go for and they get chopped that way it's like the water world thing like you got a giant boat and a bunch of people on jet skis blowing stuff up you're gonna film it because that's cool stuff and it's expensive but then when you find out your movie's like four hours long yeah (laughs) right yeah i know i just feel like it it just feels like two different shows to me i feel like we're watching the first couple of episodes were so solid and then this one felt like it was those felt like they were on HBO and this one felt like it was on sci-fi. <laughs> no, no, CBS all access. I know, I know, <laughs> but like I mean, dude, do, do you think I'm like putting too much on it or do you kind of see where I'm getting at with terms of like one of them felt like peak like felt like a prestige TV and this feels not. Well, okay, so let me let me AB this with another show that's on CBS All Access. Okay. And, and that would be Picard, right? Okay. So Picard, if you look at the quality episode, like, I'm not saying that they bombed at the end. Like, overall, I thought that was a good series. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm looking forward to more of it. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the beginning when, like, it's just, like, a couple of people and mm-hmm. they're, like, having their adventures, the each episode is super strong. And, like, good to watch, like, lots of effects, like, everything looks nice, it's it's really shiny. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the last, like, three or four episodes where they're on the planet and there's yeah. a bunch of characters, it sort of starts phase, phasing from, like, a really well-shot production to mm-hmm. a regular-level Star Trek mm. <laughs> episode. Like, I mean, I would you know, like counterpoint... like Space Nine. Yeah, I would counterpoint that by with... Uh, Star Trek Discovery, which no matter how many people they have in it, that show looks amazing. You may not like the plot, but it looks good. Well, I'm not. This isn't even a commentary on the plot. Like the when they start doing those outside scenes with all of the uh, mm-hmm. cyborgs or uh, not cyborgs, uh, actual robots, um, androids, androids. I guess is robot yeah. an offensive term for androids. I mean, we'll wait and see what what big android says if they if they yeah, yeah. they want android American, we'll switch. But like as the group gets bigger, like they stopped paying as much attention to how they lit people. Some of the scene backgrounds started to look a little mm. like cheesy. Mm. Um, the one-on-one stuff still did good. Like when the guy's in the cage and like he's interacting with the girl before he murders her or androcides her or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but like when they're like all together and they're like arguing about the fate of their group and stuff like that, it's kind of yeah, like I'm trying to remember. I mean, I remember the show, but I don't remember. I'm having trouble like remembering in detail. Oh, there was like shots that were like a bit blown out, and really, like, the mm. background was like a little bit washed, and like they, 
from a filmmaker's perspective, I was like, oh, I cut some quarters here because you got too many people on set. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I miss all that detail. And so, like, with this, like, CBS probably has a finite budget. Mm-hmm, and, like, they they wanted to hit the ground running with something really strong. So, like, it's much easier to tell a story on a budget and like go nuts when you're only hitting like two or three characters at a time. Yeah. Then it is to try and have like a, I don't know how many people would you say like a hundred people on set there. And like, chances are the people in the pit were probably also some of the people wandering around the thing were probably also someone, some of them wandering around and mealing around the second floor and the third floor and I bet if you look at the credits, you'll find multiple credits for same people because, like, they probably didn't have the budget to hire enough extras. So then they just, like, okay, well, let's just move Paul over there, you know? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're helping me feel a little better about it. I mean, I guess from a production, there's a there are production limits that I should take into hand. I think I'm just mad about Vegas, and so I'm being extra harsh. Well, it's kind of that, like, so there's a there's a secret sauce to this, and, like, um, one of the things that uh, has become popular in Hollywood is to try and write a script where, like, there's the least amount of set changes possible mm-hmm. and the smallest number of, of people possible, but it mm-hmm. still becomes a success. So, like, Cabin in the Woods, like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, super easy, because, like, contained, you only Contained, contained. Yep, contained, yeah. exactly. Uh-huh. Or that, uh, what, what's the one where they're underground with um, the dude from Roseanne? Oh, Cloverfield Lane. Ten Cloverfield Lane. That's a good-ass movie. Yeah. Exactly. But, like, the whole thing is, like, if you only have a couple of sets, you can make those the best sets you can afford. That makes sense. And, like, if you only have three or four actors, you really lean hard on their acting skills and, like, Mm -hmm. put them in situations where, like, it feels feels like something's going to happen. And you spend the least amount of money and, like, have the most opportunity for... Um, you know, return on your investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that makes sense. And this and, this is the opposite of that. There's a billion D people, a billion D characters. Yeah, well, like, this is, to me, it felt like the problem is actually that, like, the director wants to tell this really big story, mm-hmm. but, like, he's limited to the same amount of dollars per episode. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. All right, so, overall... How are you feeling? Well, now now that I've explained myself into that corner, like it also really explains why they lean so hard on Harold. Yeah. Because think about how easy it is to do good Harold scenes. It's so easy. Like he makes it so easy. Yeah. And it's just Harold and like one or two other characters, like having a weird interaction and then like, yeah, move on. And like the set dress is just like, in a school locker room, you know, like yeah. at a house, mm-hmm. uh, at a dinner party, yep. like yep. walking up to a door, like all really easy things that aren't going to, you know, blow your budget as mm-hmm. opposed to like filling an embassy suites up with That's true. People. That's true. All right. You've convinced me. Well, hopefully the next episode, I don't even know where we're going, but hopefully it will uh, be more Harold and less <laughs> embassy suites. <laughs> all right. 
All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. I guess that's just about it for us today. Uh, for those of you at home, if you had some thoughts on the chapter or the episode or whatever the case may be, drop us a line at castofcallatzombiegirls.com. Like I said, join the Facebook group and come hang out. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes. If you're looking for something to watch tonight and you don't know what's out there, like you're a big horror movie or sci-fi fan and you're like, what's out there? What can I watch? Head over to the Zombie Girls website and check out our video on demand and streaming calendar where we keep track of all of the upcoming horror and horror adjacent movies that are available on all of the various billion T streaming services as well as on video on demand. And if you love the show so much, you can always uh, support us by joining our Patreon. Head over to uh, Patreon forward slash Zombie Girls and you can sign up at various levels. We have tons of really awesome perks like for instance... We have an extended, every episode has an extended section where we talk about all, who knows what it's going to be. It could be random things. It could be taking quizzes, doing a deep dive on a weird tinfoil hat theory. It could be us having like a heart to heart conversation about something completely off topic. The point is, if you want to hang out with us a little bit longer in every episode, join our Patreon. You can also uh, get access to our Discord where you can talk to us behind the velvet rope where we like keep it 100% real <laughs> if you want that in your life <laughs> as well as really fun bonus episodes where like we have a few drinks and keep it 150% real <laughs> all kinds of good stuff so head over to our patreon and check that out all right dj if none of that is enough and they need more of you in their life where can they find you on the internet uh, swing over to deadliner.com and you can listen to the new version of the Splattercast, which is just called uh, the Deadliner Podcast. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. How is, um, the, the, how is the Beatles? Are you are you working your way through the catalog still? You know, um, I'm not not as bad on the Beatles. Uh, you know, I if this was a, a AB, I was was definitely more in the B before, and now I'm falling towards the A. Uh, Beatles have have been shining me up a little bit, so. That's not as bad as I thought, although I would still argue that the Beach Boys are um, are the superior Beatles. Ooh, controversial. But that's a statement that I'll let hang and not face any scrutiny because my lack of musical knowledge of both bands is prevalent. <laughs> uh, uh, otherwise, that's I wish you had gone um, like, been like ABBA. ABBA is the best Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Ace of bass. <laughs> Ace of base. <laughs> I'm calling you out. Noel Gallagher is the best Beatle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's that Liverpool connection. So I, I like it. I like it. All right. I mean, Sorry. Oasis, they're definitely on there. Uh, no, no. But that, that's pretty much about it. Um, uh, and this cast. And then occasionally, like, uh, behind the scenes, uh, if you get into some of uh, the Zombie Girl podcasts, you might hear me uh, wandering around inside of those podcasts uh, Yeah, in the Velvet Rope section. So that's Absolutely. always a fun experience to have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll get to see DJ's dogs. <laughs> you'll get to hear a very life-changing pee story. <laughs> <laughs> Which now lives rent-free in my head. <laughs> oh, yeah, you should definitely do it. All right, cool. Well, if you want some more of this, you can find me on the Zombie Girls podcast where we talk about horror movies from a feminist perspective. You can find me on the More Deadly podcast where we review horror films directed by women. We actually have some really exciting episodes coming up. We've been talking. It's Women in Horror Month still. And so we have been talking to uh, various women directors who have films coming out this month and kind of getting 
to know their process and and their creative like their creative thinking and it's it's really fascinating i'm always really 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 inspired by women filmmakers in general but women specifically and so that has been a lot of fun and then you can also find me on uh, stream queens where we review horror films that are streaming on the internet and i think pretty soon you'll be able to at least hear me on twitch uh i'm playing what yeah i'm playing the forest with uh the here's johnny guys and our friend shannon and so if you want to hear me scream and get scared of every time a mutant with too many arms comes running at me um i will i'll put some details about that when i'll, I'll post about that if people are interested um yeah it's a lot of fun they've all played it and then there's me who's not been played it so they basically just set me up to get scared <laughs> for an hour <laughs> my visualization and hearing are like you squeeing and like little hands flapping around <laughs> much except for like see dj you and i've never actually watched a horror movie together but if we had you would become the latest person who does an imitation of me because everybody has <laughs> one i go apparently this is what i do i go oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i don't realize i'm doing it but i've heard enough people do it at me when they're imitating me to know that i do something along those lines so mm -hmm. if you want to hear that live <laughs> notes taken <laughs> oh my god um yeah def I'll, i will let people know if they want to watch us on twitch but you can also just like follow here's johnny's twitch channel which you should do anyway because they're they're really they're really fun and they they do that shit regular so you should follow them and occasionally i will be there too <sighs> all right dj that is it please do me a favor and take us out so close your eyes for a moment and imagine you're watching a horror movie and someone's sneaking oh, up god. behind and like suddenly <laughs> oh, some worm god. jumps out and you hear, oh my god. <laughs> Shut up! And you can just visualize Rachel from now on. And that oh, is a good night. Oh my god. <laughs> so unflattering. <laughs> like I want to be a girly girl that's like, oh, eek. But instead I just go, I mean, oh my god. <laughs> so to be fair and like i don't know if this is gonna stay in or not but uh i work with i work with a guy that was like the most manly man like muscle shirts and uh -huh. like biker and everything and the first time he almost gets in a car accident i hear <laughs> <laughs> so we just and switch places is what you're saying i know and like I, everybody <laughs> stops and like looks over and the guy's name is, is larry and that's as far as i'll go with names but like oh larry L larry is like the man's man and then like this happens and it's like you scream like a little girl <laughs> Yeah, and apparently I, like, get, like, a, I don't know, a full machismo man. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, I need somebody to, like, actually, it'll be good. Like, I'll, I think I need to hear it, because I don't know that I'm, it's involuntary, so I don't know what's happening. But, like I said, I've heard enough people imitate it that I know I do it. I must do it. <laughs> so my imit I'm imitating people imitating me, so I need to actually hear what I sound like. I'm probably going to be mortified. It's like when I learned that I, when I get nervous, I like when speech class, we had to do this one speech where you, uh, you gave a presentation with a visual aid and I discovered that when I'm nervous, I spank my own butt. What? And it's not even like, uh, my hands on my hip and I'm just rhythmically slapping my ass. I like would pinwheel my arm and like punctuate my sentences by smacking my own butt. That is such a strange body movement. I know. It is 
so awkward. And the thing is, is I know I do it because to this day, I have VHS videotape proof of it. <laughs> I feel like that's like a great end to a meeting and like, and now we're done. Yeah. Like I would pinwheel my arm and kind of like stick my hip out like, whoops. So you like you almost pony dance with Yes. I don't oh, know. Man. Oh now my boyfriend's standing next to me imitating me. <laughs> you know what? We're calling it. Goodbye, everybody. Good night. Thanks everybody for listening and to my co-host DJ for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Our theme song for the show was created by DJ. Bye.